This is the Andrew Lake Podcast, and today I'll be speaking with Dave Goodman. I sincerely hope you enjoy. <laughs> oh man, I'm so glad to be speaking with you. Oh man, me too. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. We've got so many shared interests yeah. and I've always looked up to your ways of thinking and talking about things. And the four, three or four main things I want to ask about are things I know you're very interested in, yeah. as am I, which is music, learning, because I know you're a teacher as well as a student, and creativity and then more broadly, a philosophy of life and thinking about how they all tie in together and how they're all related. Right. But I'm also trying to get deeper into this phrase that you used last time we spoke and have a bit more of an understanding for myself. And I think the phrase is something like words to live by oh, right, right. or something like that. Is that is that right? Yeah. And what does that mean to you? Well, it's something that I, I kind of, I guess I use it tacitly for myself these days. Like it's, it's one of those things that you, when you remember that phrase, it's like, ah, oh, that's that thing I wish I would remember all the time. You know, but you, you mustn't beat yourself up when you remember it and you find that you've been forgetting it. Uh, you've, you've actually got it, you know what I mean? Like you've got <laughs> yeah. to actually sort of go, oh, cool, I remembered that, that, that phrase. And it's like, a, I don't know, like a little a semi-motto that I'm trying to live by these days, you know, um, words to live by. What what I meant by that is um, time uh, is running out. It's becoming more and more scarce, you know, uh, for me yeah, as I age. And, and I've got a list of things that I really want to accomplish. And, um, and so... And, and that list seems to be increasing and the complexity of the tasks needed to complete these goals is increasing and more demanding on my time and my energy and as my body ages I'm having to you know really take care of like making sure I get sleep and the right nutrition and all of this just so that I've even got enough energy to even just keep going whether or not I finish anything and so time is more and more scarce these days so when i when i speak or when i'm being spoken to i really really honestly hope that the words that are spoken both ways are words to live by because anything else is just not worth uttering it's a waste of time and energy you know so i'm very very precious i guess now, this year in particular i feel like I want to manage my time a bit better. Like well, I'm teaching a lot more this year, actually, which I'm very happy to do. So that means you know time time is is much more um, scarce. So yeah, any time there's any utterance, got to got to be words to live by. You know, otherwise, I mean that's that's a pretty extreme thing to say, but I think it's good as a general principle. No, I hope so. It's something to look up to, I guess, to to strive for. I I, I certainly I I. I waste words a lot. So if uh, if someone's like, oh, I've got to take out the rubbish. 
or it's well, time, actually, to, you time know, to make breakfast. He's like, these stop are words, talking, these, that's a waste. These are words to live by too in certain domains. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, okay. You, so, you, you know. so it's not just we have to be profound and existential all the time. No. There's that's still a, a practicality to it. That's right. You, you can't deny the fact that the garbage needs to be taken out and, and, and all of these seemingly mundane tasks. And if you if you if you allot your time properly and that you're regular and all these things, you can kind of find some sense of I don't know I don't even know I feel like I want to say enlightenment, but I I'm not saying I'm enlightened at all. But but you can see like the secrets of life are also wound in with the task of taking the rubbish out, for example. So if you're talking about taking the rubbish out, you know, it's all contextually relevant. So when you're actually having a, a conversation for the sake of having a conversation, that's probably what I what I mean. But yeah, that's not to discount the validity of taking the garbage out and talking about taking the garbage out because that's... It's, I, I read a lovely essay by the great guitarist from King Crimson, Robert Fripp. Have you ever come across him? No, I'm unfamiliar with his stuff. Check him out. There's this thing. If you just type into Google The Road to Graceland by Robert Fripp, there'll be a page. First thing you see will be a page, and it's it's this lovely little essay he's written. It's almost poetry, but you know, it's not, not rhyming poetry. It's just little little ideas. And um uh I, I, I when I was at the con I I had this folder in my first couple of years and I, I cleaned this folder out at one point. And I found this thing printed on the back of some paper, like some manuscript paper. That someone had given me a photocopy of it. And um, I don't know who it was. I asked, my, I thought it was Mike Knock, and I, I asked him. He says, no, no, I, <laughs> he'd never heard of it. <laughs> I thought it might have been him who gave it to me. But, but The Road to Graceland by Robert Fripp. Anyway, there's one part in that where he says, the small parts of your life are your life. So any change in the small parts of your life are changes to your life. Yeah. Whoa. So taking the garbage out is a, that's your life is it's a good way of putting those big ideas in with yeah, the mundane. Well, he's amazing at that. That whole thing is they're they're worse to live by. Actually, you'll dig it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. So the forbidden question: <laughs> What can you say about music? It's sort of well, I I see it as one of those things is that you can't really talk about because music mm. is self-evident in a way. Right. But then again, I love talking about music, and there's so many things that we can say about it. Yeah. So, what would you say is your most broadly speaking approach to music? Wow. Um, through the desire to hear it, and and actually to hear it being made. That's the first thing that comes to mind. I've, I've never thought about that before. So I'd, that's just what my guts are <laughs> bringing up. I, I have an intense desire to to hear it, uh, to hear it being done well, and to hear it being done well and actually like created it at like at at the point of creation of it. I love hearing recordings. That's like a static representation of a creation of music that took place. And it does a pretty good job at capturing a lot of the salient features of the sound that took place in the studio or on the stage wherever it was recorded. Um, but to me, there's this undeniable um, 
extra bonus experience that you get when you're in the presence of the music being created live, those instruments, you're breathing the air that those instruments are vibrating to create that. You know, to me, that's very, very, very powerful. You know, like breathing that air. You breathe the air, I guess, to some extent, if it's coming through some speakers. But it's it's not even a fraction, man, on, on what what's going on in a real live performance. You got the you got the energy of the of the performers, the blood, their sweat. You know, they're breathing as well. You're sharing the same breath. Uh, there's something really powerful and almost mystical about that to me. I I crave it, and and um, especially when it's really good. And I think every well, not everybody. I can't speak for everybody. I can only speak for myself. But I I suspect that people who go out to concerts are craving a similar kind of experience and approach to music. There's something in it. I don't even know. Whatever that thing is, it really attracts me. And it attracts me to the point that it made me want to actually make my body make those sounds. And I think that's why I love playing so much. And and that's what I want my students to feel. I want them to feel that same total body almost out-of-body experience of the joys of creating music, that sound, what it does to you. It's it's cleansing, it's healing, it's amazing. That's my approach to it. One of my old teachers, yeah. in fact, it might have been you or someone, Right. they said something like, music is only one or two letters removed from magic. <laughs> so magic and music yeah, like are that. very closely related. So I like this this word you use, mystical, because mm. that sort of gets at a similar sort of idea. One or two more letters removed. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I um, I had I had this great experience in 1998, right? Which I'll never forget. This this will I'll carry with me forever. Wow! And it was unexpected, and to me. I guess, you know, to keep going with the mystical theme, like uh, somewhat of a mystical experience for me. Uh, I, I, I was a big fan at that time of um, the, the Chick Corea Quartet that was exist, existing at that time. Um, that's the band that recorded the album Time Warp. I don't know if you've heard that. So who who's the personnel? Is that so Roy Haynes? No, no. Oh, that's another one. No, it's a different band. Um, although Roy was playing with Chick in a different band around that same time with um, Roy Hargrove and, and those people. Yeah, I remember that album, Now He Sings, Now He Sobs. Oh, yeah. So but this that's is, different to that. Yeah, very, that was like 1968, I think. This is like... 19, oh, so this is much more modern. Yeah, this okay. is 1995, right. I need to get my jazz history Oh, no, no, not, not at all, no. Um, and yeah, so uh, Chick Corea, Bob Berg was playing saxophones on this. Um, John Petitucci was on the bass and the drummer was Gary Novak. Now, um, I I came to this because I I read an interview with Gary Novak in the April 97 edition of Modern Drummer. And I, I really, I, I had been avoiding what you might call fusion music at that time. I was new to learning jazz. I was in my second, uh, oh no, sorry, early third year at the con. And so I was all about learning to swing and, and all of this. 
and like i i um i i don't know like i had been resisting going into the fusion realm just listening like i think people had advised me against it <laughs> certain influential people um but anyway i was still sort of buying copies of modern drama when i found someone on the cover interesting or whatever and anyway um the second story in this magazine was like gary novak and i read the interview and i i really 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 liked like the way he spoke about his experiences and 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 the way he was approaching the music and his influences and and all the kinds of things that he went, he went on with there and he just he he looked like there's photos of him playing in there and I didn't know anything about him prior to this. I knew that he was Chick Corea's drummer and that was fusion and that was verboten, you know, <laughs> according to the, the people who were advising me at the time. And um, I saw in him some kind of integrity in the way he was approaching the drums in those photos and I heard the integrity in what he said. So I, I'm like, I need to hear this, right? So I went to the con the next day after I read that interview, totally inspired by what he said. And I'm asking around, has anyone got Time Warp by Chick Corea? And my friend Ben Savage, lovely tenor player who who um, lives in Toowoomba now, um, he said, yeah, yeah, I've got that on a cassette tape. I'll loan it to you. I've got it here. You know, it's like he pulled it out of his bag and gave it to me. And I put it on in the car and drove home. And I just absolutely, I nearly crashed. Like I had, <laughs> it was just this, there were moments in the music and the sound of the tape too, like I've consequently well subsequently bought it on cd and and it still doesn't have the the sound quality that that tape had right in my car so that was time. a plus that it was on tape not cd yeah sonically just that wonderful thing that tape had and i just realized this guy's an absolute beast and i you know <laughs> I, I wasn't previously a fan of bob berg right i wasn't i didn't like his sound i heard him on a mark copeland album I'm like who's this guy you know I mean, I sound like an idiot saying that about Bob Berg, but I, I just, my first impression was I didn't like it. But on this album, like, oh, wow, there's this real hookup musically. Yeah, cool. And and then, so I started looking into Bob Berg and I and, and my friend Willow had all these tapes of Bob Berg um, recording with the Cedar Walton Quartet when he was 21. And absolute, have you heard that? No, no. Oh, there are these live sets with Billy Higgins on drums and Sam Jones on the bass. You will love it, man. It's so good. And Bob Berg's 21 and absolutely caning it. Wow. And so I'm like, wow, this this guy is amazing. I became a Bob Berg fan. And I, I don't know how it came to be, but one of the lecturers at the con at that time was this guy, Gordon Brisker, who was from LA. And I became friends with Gordon and a lovely player. He's since passed on, unfortunately. He had a beautiful sound. He was a cool guy to be around. And, and he knew a lot about music and he had a lot of experience in LA. And he came, he was teaching harmony and saxophone at the con. Well, anyway, Gordon called me one Sunday and he said, Oh, Dave, uh, it's Gordon Brisker here. And I said, Hey, Gordon, how are you going? He says, Oh, good. Uh, um, I've got uh, Bob Berg coming to the con to do a saxophone workshop and I want you to play the drums. Wow. <laughs> I, oh, wow. I nearly dropped the phone. <laughs> well, are you serious? Because I like, and I'm, I'm checking out all this music. And Bob Berg just released this quartet album with Novak on the drums and David Kukowski on piano and Ed Howard. Ed, Roy Haynes' rhythm section, you mentioned Roy. Um, but with Gary Novak on the drums because they had a real hookup in Chick's band. And that was just 
sensational music. I mean, for me at that time, early 1998, just just balls to the wall, real full on high energy. I love high energy stuff. Wow. And these guys are the best at it, you know. And, and, and anyway, so I'm digging this music. I go, oh my God, I've got to play with that. <laughs> wow. Well, anyway, uh, so that was like uh, around Anzac Day. 1998 uh, Bob Berg was out here with Gary Willis the bass player and Dennis Chambers was on drums and um and Gordon got Bob to come to the con and do a workshop and I was just in my fourth and final year at the con and I'd been checking Bob out for a year with Gary Novak and I'm like oh my god I get, I have to well he he came in and the the room was there must have been one or 200 people in there and it was, every saxophone player in Sydney was there and Bob he met us and and uh, Mark Lau, the bassist, who was also in fourth year, and Pete Roberts, we, we were the trio. And Bob came, and I'm like, there he is, wow. He says, oh, cats, uh, yeah, let's play, uh, we'll play like, uh, say, Autumn Leaves, uh, you know, ballad, you know that ballad, uh, Soul Eyes, let's play Soul Eyes, and then uh, let's play Impressions. Let's play Impressions, okay? Now, Impressions, you know, after one or two choruses, actually, no, this came later, so we started playing the thing, and and I'm I'm just like his sound just filled the room. He nearly blew the roof off. Whoa. The biggest tenor sound I've ever heard in my life, right? And and I'm like, wow, you can really just play the drums playing with this. You don't have to hold back. You can just bash out. And he's with me the whole way. He had better time than than the best bass players I've ever played with. Like he was just so commanding of the time, right? And and we're playing. And then before we played impressions, he turned around to us and he goes, okay. Uh, in this one, after one or two choruses, my my tenor solo let me and the drummer have it, and I'm like, "Fuck, I get to do two albums." Bob Berg. Whoa. Uh, okay. Uh, all right. So we started. He called it pretty. He just started playing. He didn't even count in. You know, and we just I just joined in in the bridge and we started playing and and anyway so. He took the first solo, and and I'm 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 holding on for dear life, right? And I was right into <laughs> you know it's coming, yeah. And I, yeah, exactly, right. And I, and I was right into Tony Williams at the time, and he was playing his hi hat cymbals on all four beats of the bar, not on two and four. So I'd been working on doing that, you know, my up tempo stuff. Anyway, well, Bob played one chorus, and I had my eyes shut and my head down because I'm just trying to concentrate like crazy. And and he played one chorus and then he deferred to Pete for a piano solo. I'm like, oh, well, so much for the two out. Okay, well, whatever. It's been nice to play with him, you know. And I've got my head down and my eyes shut. And then and then the next thing I hear is this bellowing voice in my left ear. And I look up, I'm startled. And I look at this, this Bob, he's right in my face. And he goes, hey, when you play with me, don't play four on the hi-hat. Like, Whoa. <laughs> okay, all right. You know, and then he goes back out the front. And I'm thinking, well, he's already played his solo anyway. And that's the third of the three songs we're going to play. Well, it's been nice. Okay. And I'm not really good at playing two and four on the hi-hat anyway. Thank God, because it's all over. Well, Pete played one or two choruses. And then Bob came in for a second solo. And then after a chorus, the cats laid out and it was on. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and, and man, like I thought this would be, be nice. Two or three choruses with Bob. Well, he kept going. And going and going and going. And I, I've, I don't know how many choruses he played, but my friend Willow, who I told you about before, he had his mini disc recorder there. Wow! So you got it. 
and he recorded it. Yeah. And uh, listening back to the recording, and I've put it up on my SoundCloud and on my website because, you know, why not? Uh, there's a 22-year-old me with Bob, actually just about to turn 22, and uh, 21, sorry, and 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 hanging on for dear life, trying to only play the hi-hat <laughs> on two and four, and it went for five minutes. This two-out thing, it just kept going and going and going, and I think he knew at the end of the five minutes that I had kind of reached my peak and it was so much fun it was just electrifying and i i i fell in love with just it was one of the single most great experiences playing music for me and so i realized at that point you hear the recordings of these guys but to experience the creation of it in situ and to take part in the creation of it is altogether different than sitting and, and imbibing a recording, you know. So that that kind of changed me quite a bit. And I I I, I contacted him when I was in New York, and and uh, he remembered me, and um, uh, turned. I, he wasn't playing in New York when I was there. This is in two thousand and two. He he said, "Well, yeah." <laughs> It was an email, you know, reading the email in his voice. <laughs> he said, well, well, I'm going to London to play in Roddy Scott's and Novak's going to be on the drums. And I said, I'm going to London. And I did. And I saw them for a week. And he just got this new, like, untouched Selma Mark VI um, that that he was the only guy who ever played it. It was like under some guy's bed. <laughs> he had just gotten it. And his sound was just through the roof. And I'm watching him and Novak play together. It was the closest thing I could imagine to, to hearing Chick's band. You know, it had that same fire about it. These two brothers in arms just, just absolutely hooking up on that high, you know, like um, sort of etheric playing of of where you make music and bond as as people um and i i just thought this is what i want to do and i wanted to play with bob again and he remembered me and and i like and I, my my old school well actually the old family friend matt came with me and and we were sitting at the front table right behind gary's drums and and bob's like hey dave man i need somewhere to put my horns down and so he left his soprano on our on our table while he was playing his tenor and left his, you know, I'm like, wow, cool. You were that cool. close. Yeah, it was. And then, um, well, Bob ended up getting killed in a car accident only about three months later. I saw one of his last gigs. Um, and uh, that sent me, that was the first thing that sort of sent me into a bout of depression, actually, the following year, uh, Bob being killed. Because I really, just the fact that I got to experience him again in another part of the world and he remembered me and that we, we got on as people, I thought, I'm, I want to play with him again. It wasn't I wanted to be in his band or anything. I just wanted to play music with that sound again. Cause, and I, now that I had heard him and Gary play, you know, like at the same time, well, it was life-changing for me. As good as it can get as far as I'm concerned, you know, um, according to who's who was alive at that time and just the circumstances I was be able, able to engineer to be there you know spent a lot of money getting to london man fuck <laughs> yeah um uh, but it was absolutely an an investment so you know that's like that energy 
is what attracts that that's what defines my approach to music these days i don't expect that that experience will ever come again but um i'm really grateful for that one experience i read an interview with the old papa joe jones in modern drama once when he was quite elderly and he said something in there he says if you weren't there in the 30s you missed it <laughs> so i, I kind of get a sense that i know what he means like you missed the particularity of what he was engaged with in the 30s which would have been just this incredible time you know pre-world war ii so you know the whole global thinking you know, it was totally different and you just can't replicate that people try but it's you know, i'm not into period music i'm into like what's actually happening and being created like now can i be a part of that too please yeah you know i'm really really that's it for me it sounds like this reference to modern drama and hearing about these cats mm. talk is sort of a way for you to enhance your understanding and you get more out of the music it was sort of like like mm. you said you read this article and it was a lead into discovering mm. something amazing yeah and that sort of might be the argument that talking about music can be a plus yeah. rather than detracting from it oh yeah depending on how you go about do, doing that yeah definitely i mean i guess the music it really exists in and of its own sound you know uh, that same trip to new york that I had, I, I remember sitting there. Um, <laughs> I was meant to meet the bass player Matt Cloacy to go and see a gig by this saxophone player Eli DeGibri. I had never heard of him, but it was advertised that he was playing with Kurt Rosenwinkel, Ben Street, and Jeff Ballard at um, what's it called Fat Cat. A lot of pool tables in the room as well. I don't know if that place is still around, but um, you know, I went. I wanted to hear Jeff Ballard, um, and and that trio actually. Well, I got there, man, and like Chloe was nowhere to be seen. He had just moved to New York, um, and he's actually since gone and played with Dave Kukowski and Gary Novak. Just incidentally, you know, um, he he set himself up there, and he's been doing great things. But like. He he wasn't anywhere to be seen during the first set. Anyway, the drummer was not Jeff Ballard. It's this big African American guy, and I didn't recognize him. You know, I'm like, I don't I don't know who that is. And he's just playing the the house drums that are there. And the music started, and man, I thought the drums were going to end up against the back wall with the rest <laughs> of the audience who were there. This guy was ferocious, and I thought, you know, I knew I was not going to get a chance to see Elvin because he, he was out of town until about three weeks after I was going to leave, you know, so I'm like, well, I thought this is as close as it's going to get for me to hear Elvin Jones. It was just ferocious, you know. So after the, they played a whole set, and Eli DeGibri didn't do any talking. He just, he back announced everything and introduced the band, and like, this drummer and and Kurt Rosenwinkel had this incredible hookup. This 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 energetic thing, and I hadn't seen Novak and Berg play together yet. You know, this this again, this this I don't know that. I guess you just call it a hookup, a connection, a connection, and 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 they were just feeding each other, and it just the the, the intensity of it was so amazing. Well, anyway, he back announced it, and it turned out to be Gregory Hutchinson on drums. And I'm like, wow, well, I I really, I thought he was like a real mainstream, kind of real polite. I, I didn't, I'm the ignorant one here. I didn't really know enough about him. But he turned my head around completely. He was a real high energy, post-Elven kind of drummer. And and, and, and then Chloe came in the second set. And I was thinking all through that first set, man, I can't believe Matt's not here to hear this. And I'm like, oh, how can I convey this to him? And that's when I realized I can't. I could use all the words I want in the world, 
But that Frank Zappa line talking about music is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> That's came, a good way of putting to it. Mind. Yeah. Yeah. I can I can tell him about it, but I can't reproduce that feeling in the words. Lucky me, I was there. And he, he doesn't even know what he missed. You know what I mean? So if someone wasn't there, they don't know what they missed. And I, I realize that about myself. If I'm not there, if I wasn't there at whatever particular thing that was just on fire, I don't even know what I missed. Because you can't. There's no possible way of conveying that. Yeah. Not even in recordings or photos or video footage. There's nothing. It, 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 the camera and the microphone miss the essence of it. Even though they do a really good job at reproducing the image and the, and the audio from it. And the, and the journalist will you know, describe it in, in, in words. Uh, never capture the essence of it. Ah. So, yeah, and I, I, I since bumped into Hutch. I was in Bali oh, two years ago now with Steve Barry's quartet and playing at the, um, what was it called, the Ubud Village Jazz Festival. And uh, Gregory Hutchinson was there with Gerald Clayton trio and we, we were hanging out backstage. And I said, oh, man, I saw you in New York with Eli DeGibri. And, um, <laughs> and I said, oh, man. You know, he remembered when that period was in his life. And, and I said, you... You know, I never got to see Elvin, but I thought that was as close as I would ever have gotten. He says, oh, man, you think that was good, man? Elvin had a whole set, a few more gears he could go into. And I'm like, are you kidding me, right? You know, and again, he's conveying to me that, like, if you missed Elvin, what Elvin is, you cannot. I, I don't know what I missed, even though I've got a ton of recordings that I listen to constantly. I, you know, I think about Coltrane. And I just think, and Miles and Hendrix, you know, like, what did you and I miss there? Yeah. What did we miss, man? Damn. (laughs) Oh. You're making me feel like I should somehow, some way go and see Keith Jarrett because. Do it. He's my favorite. But the thing is, he's, he's getting on and he recently canceled a whole bunch of dates because of his health. Yeah, right. And the other thing is, not only is it expensive, but they sell out so quick. Yeah. You would book a date and just in a second sold out. So apart from going around the, halfway around the world, spending yeah. the money on the ticket, yeah. you've got to be very lucky to well, man. get it. And yeah. that's if he turns up. Like he cancelled like quite a few dates last year. Yeah. Well, it, or it could happen to you. What happened to me? My first night in New York, I was supposed to go and see the Keith Jarrett Trio at Carnegie Hall. No way! But my flight—I had this flight from LA that connected in Kansas City. Well, the flight from Kansas City couldn't get out of New. It couldn't get out of there. They cancelled my flight actually, and I had to get on the next flight. So I like I didn't get into New York until like one a.m. and that was the only night they played. I'm like so bummed. Like, oh, oh no! Yeah, that so is a tragedy. You can line it all up and and miss it just due to some unforeseen circumstances. I can't even remember why they cancelled the flight, but they they did, you know. And uh, man, what a you know what a drag. But the foot, oh yeah. man. <laughs> So you never know. You do your best, but you're so gracious about that. I suppose oh, you've no. had years to make peace with that. No, I'm I'm on fire. Oh. You can't see the raging fire of disappointment. I would just be. <laughs> oh, I can't imagine that, man. <laughs> oh man, you missed it too. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but you didn't not know by you missed not it. by that much. 
I wasn't that close. But, you know, so like, far. again, like, you can't recapture, like, you know, the Cologne concert, you know, and, and, and yeah. the magic of those early standards live gigs, like, that were captured and that really turned all of us on to that thing. It's like, well, we weren't there. Even the essence of that wasn't captured, you know? So, yeah. like, that night that they played, maybe they could have an off night. I mean, it's unlikely, virtuosi on that never. level. Those are, that Jared's level never had being. an off night. Come on. <laughs> well, you know. Uh, You'd have to see them all to know. You'd have to see them all to know. And, and that's, I guess, why he's so adamant about having control over the recordings, you know. like he, well, That's why he cancels those concerts because people got cameras and stuff there. And, and you know what? He should reserve the right to be able to do that. And I, I think that level with the whole internet and all that nonsense that's come about, with like the, basically the, the dissolution of intellectual property rights from the creators. Um, yeah, unfortunately, the artists kind of aren't able to reserve the right to prohibit the release of these recordings that are made without their permission, you know. And I, I think that really disrespects the art form, you know. As as cool as it is for people like you and me who might be interested in bootlegs of well, not buying stuff, but like just if if the chance to uh acquire a copy of such a recording, you know, for free comes about i'm kind of keen to hear those things like there's a almost a voyeuristic part of me that wants to hear that stuff and i know that i'm transgressing but as a student of the music and a fan i i can't I, you know i'm sort of at odds with it because on the creator side it's like well i want to reserve my rights as a creator um and no one's ever going to make any money out of it again like they used to unless there's some serious changes in the ip laws but but like yeah those recordings i don't know what they mean the ones that they didn't sanction, you know. Fortunately, it doesn't mean much to me as far as my livelihood and all that stuff. Like, if, if people want to release stuff of mine, not that anyone would, uh, get it out there. I don't care, you know. I hope I, I just hope I didn't screw up too badly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but invariably, I will at some point, you know. Um, yeah, those those things. Like Keith, damn well should have that right, you know. I think in his case, there's also the factor of his sensitivity to the room, mm -hmm. his whole idea of feeding from the audience, in mm -hmm. a sense, has a factor to how his music comes out. So that's why he's protective, I think. Yeah. And he's he's always into like you know when to clap or being upset about the coughing and yeah. things like this. Yeah. Well, you just, I mean, here we are sharing the planet with you know seven billion other humans, like humans are noisy and they smell you know well we sorry we are and we we intrude upon each other's lives um that's actually sort of seems to be what we do to and with and for each other and um i guess he has to kind of just realize the truth of that that like actually keith probably could afford to be a little bit more grateful maybe for the fact that there is an audience there to listen at all a full concert hall that sells out in seconds that's yeah. it you know i mean he's obviously put a hell of a lot of work into his pianism and his musicality to to make it sound just so unbelievably good but he's got a kind of I don't know. 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 I'm not really. I don't want to comment on all of that stuff. Yeah. I just want to just focus on the music when it comes to him. I find him funny. <laughs> he's a, he's like an interesting laugh. case. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I don't want that to detract from actually the genius of of his output. You know, like a modern day Mozart or Bach. Really. I mean, you know, 
or better i don't know like just the spontaneous inventions of his are just many times i've sat there listening to those piano concerts and just i don't know you well that's what i was going to say before you know like with the um, mystical thing right yeah maybe to get back <laughs> i think i lost my track there like the reason i mentioned bob burr there was a reason for bringing him up apart from the energy and all of that the reason i brought him up is because I saw an interview with him years after he died on YouTube. There's this lovely little mini doco on Bob Berg. Check it out if you haven't. He's got his kind of gruff New York exterior. You know, that that hard edge. I mean, I can't really do it, but I, you know, I try to get a sense of that sort of Italian New Yorker, <laughs> you know, that, that sound that for me, a white boy from Tamworth is not really accustomed to you know, engaging with that accent. Do you mean in the way he talks as a person or yeah. in how he plays his music? Yeah, the way he talks as a person, right? And and I guess he played like that too. He played this really gruff, yeah, harsh, well not harsh tone. It wasn't the sweetest sound, but it was really precise and really strong. And I mean, I loved it. Um, when, you know, like I, I, I just thought he had this, you know, when, when you meet someone with that gruff exterior and that, that sound, you kind of think they're a bit of a tough guy. You know, especially it's it's it, that is amplified in this part of the world when a New Yorker comes to Sydney. It's like, wow, you, you're not from around here, are you, boy? <laughs> you know, uh, you get a real sense of the odd guy out, and and they don't understand us at all. You know, we're crazy people to them, I think. You know, and you see him, and anyway, this doco, they're talking to him about music and about art, and he kind of opens himself up a bit and he lets this vulnerable part of his character through the interview and I'm like, wow, I wish I had been able to chat with Bob on this level, you know. It was right around that time. There's a footage, I think, of maybe he's playing with Chick Corea at the time. I, I don't remember. I might be confusing with some other footage that's online. But but he, he, he said, he reiterated what I've heard other jazz artists say and I, I never really thought of him in this light until I heard him say it. He said, he said, you know, it's this is your job. Like, it was almost like he was alluding to some kind of spiritual um, vocation. Like, your job as an artist or a musician even is to inspire people and to, to kind of take them into a higher world. In you know, in the experience of listening, like the the act of listening to the music is supposed to help someone transcend the mundane, you know, uh, and for that brief moment while the music is happening, to you you are, I guess, almost um, transfigured, You're somehow changed through the experience because you've had this transcendent experience because of the. It has to be really good music for that to happen that's why keith jarrett and these guys were talking about train and all these they're so amazing because they are able to do it every time they play their instrument people like you or me can sit down and go without speech jaw dropping jaw dropping yeah <laughs> even on the recordings even on the recordings even on the recordings because you'll never hear it live with a lot of these guys and and like that's what bob berg was about and so you know, having had that experience with him and, and I, you know, I feel like, well, yeah, then that, that charges the musician with the responsibility of like, it's not for me that I play. Like, it's not. It, it can't be. 
it has to be for you. It has to be for the person listening. Because, <laughs> like, you know, and that's that Keith thing. It's like, does he know that? I don't know if he knows that. Maybe it is all about him as far as he's concerned. Maybe it is. And that's cool. It it yields a result that people do transcend. Um, so we'll put up with this. I wouldn't profess to be an expert mm. in the philosophical beliefs of Keith Jarrett. Right. I've got a little bit of an understanding. Like I know he's into the fourth way yeah. and was influenced by Gugier and those yeah. sort of guys. Yeah. But I would by no means say that I could definitely speak for him. Yeah. But Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I guess with Gurdjieff, like in the fourth way, I believe he was inspired by all the whirling dervishes and just the kind of trance-like state that those guys get into to perform that stuff. And, and it kind of inspired Gurdjieff to... to as far as I know, the fourth way is centered around like constructing a life that is centered on creative acts and I guess creative thoughts and creative words, creative attitudes, creative behaviors, creative everything, you know. But I reckon, you know, like, I mean, I, I can't profess to really talk about it either. I'm not an in depth study of Gurdjieff, but like, there's this book by, what's his name, Ospensky. Peter Ospensky. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I've man. read a little bit of that. The. The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution. Is I haven't that, that one? No, there's, I can't even remember the title now. It's a long time ago. I've got it on my shelf somewhere. But he's talking about Gurdjieff and and, and this that's where I, I yeah, I think I don't think I've even read any of Gurdjieff's original texts. But like you know, I've heard that like, you know, the, there are several paths to enlightenment. Uh, there might be a bit of variation in the paths that I've heard about, but like, you know, that's why they call it the fourth way, because the first way is kind of like the way of the fakir, you know, where it's like you're going to go through all sorts of painful experiences with your body, like, you know, mortification of the body, like, like you know, really full-on piercings and pain, you know. There's a whole sort of school of people doing that. And through through that intense experience, you, you transcend and you, you reach enlightenment. Uh, I don't know if I... <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't Fakir, know. the monk, the and monk? the yogi, Yeah, I think it was. That's right. And so this is the fourth way, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, And as far as I know, that's like creativity, whatever that means. But life also has destructive forces to it, man, as well, right? Like, like, like not everything is always being created all the time. Things die and things break and things run down. You know, that's the cycle of life. It's inevitable. So, in somewhere in that creative field, there's got to be like a sense of the natural sense of entropy and disorder in things that it has to be there. It can't can't be, you know. You know what I mean? Like, I think if it's uh, like you know the bushfires that come through here, like every twenty years or whenever they come, hopefully not in the next twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not while you're here. Yeah, but if they're natural occurrences. Um, that's what the bush needs yeah. at that time to regenerate itself. Um, that's fascinating, that stuff. I don't really know anything about it, but... Yeah, Keith. But uh, yeah, that human aspect of like having an audience and or being in an audience, you know, it's an it's interesting transaction. I'm grateful for any single pair of ears that wants to hear anything <laughs> that I do, you know, so... If you multiply that by any number, I'm I'm that many times more grateful, you know. 
They can they can burp and fart and cough as much as they want, <laughs> as long as clap it, at the wrong points. Yeah, who cares? You know, like just enjoy the experience. You know, if you want to get up and dance, great, do it. Chances are you're not going to dance anything that I do. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> dancing to metric modulation. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, no reason why why I couldn't. I mean, yeah. But I mean, yeah. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> So I wanted to talk about learning in general and being a student. Yeah. So part of what I see in your success as a drummer is your ability to learn. Right. And you're also a teacher, so you also have your own students. But I guess my question is, what is a good student or what makes for being a successful student? So if I was saying, okay, I want to learn Mm. drums Mm. or music or anything for that matter, what are the principles that I should, what principles should I have in mind when going into that endeavor? Yeah, wow, that's great. Well, you know, I does get... that clarify, does that, is that too much of a word soup or no, no. I think you know where I'm coming from? I feel like I get, yeah. tell me if I'm wrong, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, well, I mean, like, I'm taking lessons right now, actually. From a drummer? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Taking drum lessons. And I am... I'm really glad that I'm taking lessons with the teacher I'm taking them with. His name is Gordy Knutson. And they're over Skype because Gordy um, lives in Minneapolis. And, you know, like, I think I've heard heard a couple of, or read or heard whatever uh, statements about, like, like a a good student has i've heard it's called a rage to master you know like there's this fire inside that there's something you know that is beyond your grasp you get a sense of it remotely and you see other people do it and you recognize if you're looking if you look you know if you're projecting yourself onto them as though there's some kind of mirror you just see all these shortcomings and faults and flaws and you're like wow that's <laughs> can be a bit paralyzing oh yeah absolutely devastating sometimes when you come to the realization that you're very lacking in in so many things that you would like to be you know not lacking in uh rage to master and the other the other thing that i've come across is uh, there's this guy um, ernest holmes who wrote a book called the science of mind and i stopped reading the book when i came to this sentence well actually no not this sentence i stopped reading the book in another sentence uh he used the word appetition in this book never heard that word before no. well what does I, that mean i think he's probably suffixization is a mysticalism <laughs> <laughs> the word appetite appetization he's he's norm he's he's um is that like verbationism <laughs> well it's, when i talk about suffixes i talk about i add as many suffixes to suffix as i can you know, suffixizationistism realityismist right? you know <laughs> so uh i think holmes was uh yeah just talking about appetite you know like and actually to to turn something uh, he was like, I think, uh, what's it called? Nominalizing um, it by turning it into a shun thing. Anyway, he said, yeah, like the 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 earnest student 
or the you know the the dedicated student has an appetition, a hunger, basically that needs to be satisfied. There's a thirst, you know, and you hear you feel that in yourself. You're hungry for something. You're thirsty for something. You want to process something like psychically. Not it's just as important for your psyche to to digest this stuff as it is for your body to digest food. So it's nutriment for your brain or your mind, right? So some people have the gift of appetition and the rage to master. And these are the guys who you might call autodidacts, right? Or autotelic or... Uh, Self-motivated. Self-motivated, self-determined learning, self-driven. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much self-taught. I'm not entirely self-taught. I had, I had some wonderful people in, in my early years helping out. Peter Harkins at the drum shop, Steve Fuller, a local drummer extraordinaire, Joel Davis, Di Hall, my music teacher. They really helped. But as far as me developing on the drums, I took Peter's and Steve's ideas I had to work through them, but I already had been playing a few years without their advice before I met them, you know, and, and so I, I kind of set myself up to start looking for advice from whom, whomever was the best I could find. Um, and, and these people were incredibly generous to me with their time and their expertise. You know, they basically gave me the best of everything they had, you know, and, um, and anyway, so that's always put me, I, I, I guess, you know what I, I feel like if if anyone is gifted in any way, I'm not saying I'm gifted at all, but but people talk about their you know being a gift and a talent and all of this stuff, or a prodigy. A prodigy. Is that the term in music? Oh, yeah, I guess that's something to do with um, like how with young prodigious you are. talent. Yeah, well, pre- precociousness is like is more to do with like the youth of it. Like yeah, but yeah, prodigy. I'm not sure where that comes from or what. But yeah, prodigious talent. I don't even know what that means. But like, as far as talent and giftedness goes, I think that no one is gifted with the ability to do something, really. But what they are gifted with or talented with is having that rage and that appetition to seek, right? And 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 therefore to learn research techniques formally or informally and it's a very scientific uh, process that you go through you have a hypothesis i think that if i do x i can come out of it with y you know or if i put x and y together i can come out of it with z or whatever your hypothesis is and then you formulate an experiment well i'll go and study with so and so and i'll practice what they show me and let's see if my hypothesis was right. That's that's how it is for me, and that comes about again through the listening and 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 um, and all those things. Just again, I just I hear the music and I'm in love with it. It just it maybe that's that's if I have any gifts at all, it's the gift of being open to the best sound and just resonating with it, and just going wow, <laughs> and it just pushes me to to go and and learn. And to try and get good at learning how to learn, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I uh, that's why I went to New York to study with Joe Morello and Jim Chapin. And I also spent quite a bit of time learning with Billy Hart too, um, whom I was a great big fan of and I still am. And I learned a whole bunch of other things that I didn't expect from him. But they were the last teachers that I had. 
Um, and yeah, it's been, uh, God, what are they now? 2019. So 17 years ago, that was. So, uh, towards the end of last year, I very, very sheepishly made contact with Gordy Knutson through his website. Cause I had been inspired by his videos on YouTube. Gordy has been touring with the great Steve Miller for the last 30 years. And Steve Miller, as it turns out, like I didn't, you know, when I read that name, I'm like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> I looked him up and he go, Abracadabra. Oh, is that a Steve Miller hit? I remember that when I was a kid and the Joker and, and, um, fly like an Eagle. All these songs turn out to be Steve Miller songs. I'm like these are like in the collective unconscious of my entire generation. You know, everyone knows those songs. We don't know who Steve Miller is though, but <laughs> we know the songs. And, 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 and well, Gordy has been touring with Steve Miller for the last 30 years. And he's a, just a fantastic drummer, fantastic musician. Is he a jazz drummer? Is it swing? He, he plays, no, this is rock and roll, like pop music. But okay. rock, you know, like pop rock yeah. or backbeat. Big, they play, you know, like the, the weekend after I first had a Skype session with Gordy, they flew to London to play the O2 Arena, which is the the biggest grossing arena it's even it's even ahead of madison square garden as the biggest venue in the world so gordy went over there and played a played a set with steve miller <laughs> the weekend after we got together so he knows how to play those massive big stadium gigs i've never talked to anyone who knows how to do that before and i'm just getting all this insight that it's like wow this is this whole echelon of thought that i've never really considered before he's re and you listen to him there's lots of footage of that band playing check him out on youtube i've got a playlist i've made that i try to keep up to date you know like it's really really good drumming man and but before that he was a like uh, just a drummer around Minneapolis, just doing lots of jingles and record dates, and played. He played jazz with Ben Sidron, and there's great footage of him with Sidron. He sounds fantastic, one of the true greats. But his name, for whatever reason or other, is not as well known as it should be. You know, but I, I saw what he had to offer in his videos, and I'm like, man, here's my guy right there. I was looking for a teacher for a long time, but I didn't know who I was going to study with. I really couldn't, I don't know, you know. Anyway, so I wrote this email and he, he wrote back almost immediately. And he put me at ease because he turns out to be a really, really cool guy. And and, and he had he has a, a wealth more to offer than I first thought i just thought i was going to get a little bit of this wonderful open close technique from him to help with my double strokes and because i just changed my grip and i needed help with that you know um but but he he's got books and books of creative resources for drummers you know it, it, it's it's incredible you know and so I, I have sessions with him on skype as much as we can schedule um and i mean I, i'm practicing a lot i'm out there most nights on the pad just getting all this stuff together and um slowly making progress i don't expect any quick progress but uh but i'm working at it knowing that if i do what he's telling me to do i like i here's an interesting story about like trusting your teacher when i spent time with billy hart he he asked me about phil trelaw 
So do you know Filtralaw? Filterlaw? Filtralaw. Filtralaw. He's a great Australian jazz drummer he, he, who was active here in the late 70s and early 80s. He was in the jazz co-op with Roger Frampton and Howie Smith. And he's on a bunch of pivotal recordings from around that time. They're very hard to find. Australian jazz history is just so hard to find, you know, even from 20, 30, 40 years ago. American history is all over the place. You can get stuff from the 50s, from the 40s, you name it, you know, straight away. But Australian stuff, for whatever reason, it's just out of print and hard to find. I don't understand. Anyway, Phil Trelaw is one of the true greats. It turns out he went to study with Billy Hart in the 80s. And so he was the only other guy that Billy knew from Australia. And says, how... You know, I'd, I'd seen Phil maybe a year or two before that. And I said, oh, yeah, I saw him. He's cool. He says, I can never get in touch with him. He lives in Japan now, um, Phil does. And uh, he's incredible. Anyway, I, I heard from someone else that when Phil went to study with Billy Hart, Billy did this routine on him where he turned all the lights off, closed all the blinds, the room was dark, I think. I hope I'm not adding things to the story. I might be making some of this up, but the, the essence of it is still intact. And he went and stood behind Phil. Phil's like, what's going on here? And he said, I want you to fall back. It's the first thing we're going to do. I want you to fall back. Phil's like, well, this is very strange. Anyway, he did. He fell back. And Billy caught him. Didn't let him hit the ground. That's a lot of... Phil's a very tall guy. And Billy's not the tallest guy I've met. But he managed to catch this big Phil Trelaw as he, as he like fell freely backwards. He would have hurt himself if he landed on the ground. He caught him. And, and, and Billy's response to that was, Okay, good. Now that I know you trust me, we can go on with the lesson. Wow. Like, implicit trust. Phil didn't even know what kind of test he was being put through there. Billy knew. And um, I, I don't, I don't do that with my students. That's a, you know, that's like <laughs> that's like, you're not really allowed to do that kind of thing these days. And I wouldn't anyway, you know, because I, I don't want to put them at risk. I might not catch them. <laughs> I'd like to think that I could, that I'm yeah. capable, you know. But it's not something that I do. But it does really create an image for me, like the fact that that trust must be there implicitly with your teacher otherwise what are you doing with that person in the first place what do you expect to get out of that you know like when i was with joe morello like i had i had spent 18 months here with jim peace learning the best of what jim could give me of what he learned from joe you know which is a really really super wonderful intense version i think of what joe had to offer in the technical department. And it was wonderful and it saved my life at that time. So I went to see, when I went to see Joe, he got me to play for him a little bit. And, uh, you know, and I, I messed up and I did his table of time for him. I kind of messed up a little bit when I got to the 11s, you know, just it, it ends at the 12s and I, I just, I messed the 11s up. I'd been practicing them, but I was a bit nervous and I was a bit rigid. And he says, oh, just relax your left hand a little. You know, I'm like, oh my god, and he's blind. He can't even see like the quality with which I'm moving my hand. My traditional grip was rubbish anyway. Um, but uh, anyway, I got to. He took me through a few other things, like for playing accents and stuff. And and then and he says, oh, well, looks like Jim's done a good job with you. So why are you here? I'm like, wow. 
So he could tell. Yeah. Like, I think he could tell that Jim set me up with the technique. He And he did. I, I, I remember when it really came alive, and I'm so grateful to Jim for that. And I said, well, Joe, with all due respect, you know, like, this technique has changed my life. It's saved my life. And I'm not in pain anymore and everything feels a lot more effortless, but I don't feel like it's getting me any closer to the music. He says, oh, it's not getting you any closer to the music. I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm glad you said that. You know, because all this is just a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. You know, to get to get closer to the music, you've got to study melody, harmony, and rhythm. And out of that, harmony is the most important. This is Joe Marillo, the great drum teacher, telling me to go and study harmony. So I bought Schoenberg's Theory of Harmony and started doing all the voice leading exercises that he does in there. <laughs> really? You started with tone rows? Yeah. Well, not, no, no, not with tone rows. Serialism. No, no, no. Schoenberg's Theory of Harmony is before, from before he released all of that. So he before he went into that direction? He was, he was, in, he was in that direction, but he hadn't published anything about it yet. This is all legit. Western harmony, to- functional tonal harmony, diatonic. Would you Diato- call it diatonic? Right. And dealing wow. with dissonance as well. You know. Wow. Um, and 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 you know, and his count- is that where you would recommend someone to start with harmony? Is that still so what you call oh, a seminal work? It is absolutely a seminal work. And yeah, I have I have plans of making it an essential text for my drum students at oh, one point okay. when I've got enough confidence to, to say, right, Schoenberg's Theory of Harmony, this is part of your drum lesson, you know. I mean, th- that guy was a philosopher also, you know. He was a brilliant artist. Have you seen his paintings? No. Unbelievable. Schoenberg. I'm, I am a mad Schoenberg fan. I love the guy wow. so much. Mo- like, for his tonal stuff, actually... And and the tone row stuff as well, but like his his writing is gorgeous. His his use of the harmony. tone rows are an acquired taste. Let's they, be they honest. Are. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I think Alban Berg probably had a lot more success with it. You know, his violin concerto still kills me. Um, but I love Schoenberg's piano pieces. Have you heard those? No, they're, they're, I think they're sort of tone row based. Yeah. The thing about the tone rows is it's it's sort of embedded in the composition. It's not an overt statement of the twelve notes and all of that. It's 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 it forms part of the structure as well. It's as much not that I'd know how to do it, but like I'm trying and it's beautiful. So I that wish to nail that, not that I'm nailing it, but like came from Joe Morello's recommendation. You know, and it's like, because again, I thought, well, I've come all the way around the world to have drum lessons with him. And that was, that's, that's what he told me to do. So I'm going to do it. And this is, this is the thing that to answer your question is not my advice to students, but like, this is what, what makes, I think, a good student is that if you're going to fork out money and devote your time to spending time with someone who's a seasoned master, a la these wonderful teachers, Joe Gordy Knutson, Joe Morello. Jim Chapin, Billy Hart, you know, uh, for me also when, when Chad Wackerman was in town, I spent time with him and uh, you'd better, you'd better listen to what they say. You might ultimately end up disagreeing with aspects of it, but you can only do that if you trial it. You can't just say, oh, I'm not into that or, or uh, that's not my style or anything like that. Like, why are you there? You know, so if they tell you to do something, you do it. And, and you know, 
people like that have been around the world a few times. They know what they're talking about. What you know? Why else are they so well known as some of the greatest teachers in the history of drumming? Um, that's why I sought them out. I want the best, man. You know, and to me, with Gordy Knutson's like presentation of open close technique and the way he uses this idea of morphing, double, not to get too technical you know, but like morphing double strokes into flams and what he calls the singled four. He's actually a pioneer of this stuff. So he's almost like the third guy in this trilogy for me, like a real true pioneer as a as a drummer and educator, Gordy Knutson. And and I just feel absolutely privileged to to be in such good relations with him. You know, I I, I can't speak highly enough of, of him and what he has to offer. So I'm yeah, I'm practicing madly and I think that like you cannot deny the fact that your brain works in a certain way, you know. I mean, to to really distill it in as few words as possible, it's a pattern recognizing and repeating machine. It doesn't know the quality. It doesn't recognize quality. We recognize quality. So they say practice makes perfect, but that's not entirely a complete statement. Perfect practice makes perfect. So if you if you get if you practice badly or you don't practice at all, you know, which is practicing badly, then you get really good at practicing badly, which therefore make, means you become a pretty awful player. So after a certain period of time, you get really good at sounding really bad and there's nothing you can do about it, right? Because of the way the brain works. Same as someone who practices properly. They're so good at practicing well, which yields good sounding results. Trying to get some virtuoso. You, you mentioned Bill Evans before. Yeah. Right? Have you seen that footage of him where he's talking to his brother and, and he says, oh, well, some people are not practicing properly and giving them the music, just going for simple, clear ideas. And they, they want to... Have you seen that? No, I haven't. Oh, I'm not familiar with that check it out. interview. You're going to love it. Not to not to do a spoiler on you, but but like he, he tries to ham it up at some point and play like some hack player. Even Bill Evans trying to sound bad sounds like hundred times better than most other pianists would 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 give their left arm to sound like in you know in a million years, <laughs> right? Incredible. And so he can't. He's so good at being good. He can't even sound bad even when he tries. That's the best example I've seen. You know, and, and the virtuosi that I've come across, they're the same. They they can't sound bad if they try because they're they've got such good routines and processes set up because they listen to good advice. They sought good advice. And they took that good advice, they personalized it, and did something with it. And you do something every day because your long-term memories form when you sleep. And if you're talking about muscle memory and myelination and all these things, that have, I don't really know the technicalities of it. It's the repetition, the frequency of the repetition, the longer the period, and and the quality of feedback that you're giving yourself about the truth of how good or bad it is that's what makes the difference and if you can do that you'll go somewhere then you do it and you've got to make progress incrementally you know too many people myself included are jumping around with tempos too much and you're shooting yourself in the foot you're whipped before you start so i try to set up a routine for my students that i try to adhere to myself which is be kind to yourself allow yourself to be patient and you will actually not even notice your own progress if you practice properly. You'll just be so great. You know, there's a drummer in Sydney who's just like that. His name's Alex Hurley, and 
he um uh he he absolutely knocked me out last year i was judging the national jazz awards and and alex ended up winning it i mean david jones and hamish stewart and i was like wow this is incredible you know and and uh he doesn't even know how good he is like it's such a natural thing for him because he's actually been in a really good learning it turns out like i've found out from him since that like you know he's got this background he had he he grew up going to the con high school studying for four years with daryl pratt and two years with rick miller learning proper symphony and those guys teach you how to practice you know and he told me that like yeah you, you had to practice properly for daryl you know rick was a bit more laid back but the, i've heard i've talked to other students of rick's and and um they tell me all sorts of amazing things that he gets them to do with trampolines. <laughs> um, yeah, so if you've got teachers like that, I think you, they're going to set you up pretty well. And Alex obviously loves the drums and he, he did what they told him to do, you know. So that's, yeah, you know, like the, the, the big problem I see is like I, I might inherit a student who's been taking lessons for seven years. I used to get excited when someone would say, yeah, I've been playing drums for seven years. I'm like, well, since I was in year three or something like that, I'm like, wow, cool. Play for me. And they go, oh, I don't know what to play. Oh, man, you haven't learned a thing, have you? You know? Now, I don't know how much of that's their fault and I don't know how much of that is their previous teacher's fault. Maybe a bit of both. But the problem is with the kid, they don't know. See? They don't They don't necessarily know that the, the, the lessons they're getting aren't any good. Like the teacher hasn't set them up to be making incremental progress in in quality, you know, and getting through more and more and more stuff with the right technique. Yeah. You know? I'd really like to emphasize this mm. point that you're making, which yeah. is practicing the wrong way mm. actually sends you in the wrong direction. Yeah. So in a sense, when you're practicing, you're not just practicing what you are practicing but you're practicing the way that you practice. Yeah. I think that's a really important insight and that really, yeah. I think, is some good advice that I'd, I'd like to take. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, that's just such a big part of it, you know, like like just it's it's devotion, it's it, dedication. It's sort of like when, when you, what comes to my mind when I hear that yeah. is it would be a case to, simplify your practice mm. slow it down yeah. and not be as ambitious yeah. actually be less ambitious in what you're going for in order to have a more solid foundation like progress don't be ambitious at all i remember seeing billy Connolly on the parkinson show with he and sting were guests and he says you know i don't like ambitious people you know Stay away from ambitious people. I don't like it, you know. I've never had ambitions, you know. The things in life that make me happy are the things that always made me happy, you know, when I was a welder. I'd ride my bike, smoke my pipe, you know. Um, he didn't ever have any ambitions of being a superstar comedian, right? And Sting, I think Sting, turns out that Billy Connolly was at Sting's wedding, you know, and Sting kind of concurred with what billy Connolly was saying stay away from ambitious people and that's that's massive because yeah if 
the, the the problem you can come up against is that you you just you're just looking at the results that you expect that you want to get and you're not valuing the process you have to go through to yield those results and try to communicate that to people who have no idea that there is a process and you tell them there's a process and it takes time probably probably not going to notice a single change in anything for three months, maybe even a year and a half, you know. But if you do what I tell you, right, I can almost guarantee that if we spend three years together every week, you, not because of anything to do with me, but because of the processes that I'm going to engage you in, if you steep yourself in those, you will come out of it smelling like roses. You'll sound like a million bucks. I, I can almost guarantee that because I've seen it happen right and again it's nothing to do with me it's the processes that i've inherited from my teachers right and if you don't do what i ask you to do i can't guarantee you anything and you've got to really question why you're here actually at all you know and it's a rare type of student who comes to you knowing that you're the one who's going to give them that process to yield those results. That That is like a needle in a haystack type of person who comes. But when I, you know what? Um, I've seen it. Well, I mean, I'm incredibly privileged to have seen it on a handful of occasions and uh, it just knocks me out. I get inspired by those students. I really do. I mean, you give you give them one thing. Not only do they do what you ask them to do because it's the right thing to do, but they did it so quickly and so thoughtfully that they actually went and did 10 more things beyond what you asked them to do in that week. And they come back and you see them and you're like, oh my goodness, I haven't even looked at that piece myself. <laughs> you show me how that's done. That's happened a bunch of times. Yeah. When that happens, I know they're cool. They probably don't need me for much longer after that. My job is to make myself redundant. If you're having lessons with someone for seven years, you want to come out of it sounding world class. Seven years of your life. Yeah. And these kids don't even know what to play when I ask them. They can't even tell me. I say, have you got any favorite drummers? Have you heard any music? What what brought the drums into your life? Have you heard anything that you like? No. Oh. There's I, another trap that I wanted to sort of ask you about, which was, we sort of alluded to it before, mm. but maybe we can revisit yeah, yeah. this point, which is, there was a point in my learning, well, there's always been points in my learning processes where it dawns on you how much there is to learn. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's infinite. Mm. And the response to that can sometimes be paralyzing. It can be crushing to a student. Yeah. And I don't know if you can really do do you see that point in in yourself or in other students and is there any sort of uh consolation of <laughs> that realization that there is so much to learn that you'll never get there. Yeah. Well, that's that's a really interesting point. You know, it brings a few ideas to mind. I don't know how many years ago now, but probably sometime in the last five years. Oh, no, longer than that. Not really sure. I just did some really simple equations, you know, like um, 
I was trying to work some things out. You know, I was trying to write this book and I, I've got this folder out there full of these handwritten pages, like a few hundred pages of handwritten um, uh, musical exercises, you know. So I, is this different to your PhD? This is actually... Or a, a book idea for a... These are the ideas that sparked the reason to go into doing a PhD. And... Um, which turned out to be something entirely different. Um, so this book idea is different to your thesis. Uh, yeah. But yeah. it's still related it's, in some ways. It's the seed that started everything, you know. Okay. And uh, I mean, I, I had to do some calculations to work out what I was getting myself in for. And and I, I was just, I had to stop writing these because I was going to be there. I'd be there for the, oh, I don't even know how long I'd be there to, to complete the ideas, right? basically infinitely long set of ideas I was getting myself in for, right? I thought maybe it'd take me a year to write them out, then I could practice them for 10 years. <laughs> but once I did the calculations, I stopped. Um, something like, um, okay, you want to be a master of rhythm, right? So take four bars of semiquavers, 16 notes in a bar, four bars yields 64 places. You're going to play a note or a rest, right? You got It's a binary thing, two options. So that yields 2 to the power of 64 possible unique rhythms in four bars, right? Do you know how large that number is, 2 to the power of 64? No idea. It's 18 quintillion, over 18 quintillion. Have you ever heard that number before? No. So 18 quintillion is the number 18 with another 18 ciphers after it. Right? Oh. How big is that number, I hear you ask? Because who can tell how big that is? Well, here's a way to work it out. Let's say you, you had the luxury and the privilege of spending money from birth at the rate of a million dollars a second how long would you have to live to have spent 18 quintillion dollars how long you're not even gonna guess <laughs> no you don't have to guess i mean i, I know this because i a I, year I two years no no longer 50 years longer Longer than 50 years. Longer than 50 years, yeah. So, you know, after a minute, you've spent $60 million, you know. After an hour, you've spent 60 times that. And you're living, yeah, longer than 50 years. You want to know how long? How long? 500,000 years. 500,000 years? <laughs> so that, you know, so that's... You're you going to have to give me your diet plan if that's how long you're living. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wish I could. Uh, you know, Billy, that's one of the things Billy Hart said. He said, man, some cats are rhythm, playing rhythms so large it takes them several lifetimes to complete. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, who, we can't even process a million different rhythms in a second. You know, it takes, how, how long does it take for four bars, you know, at 120 beats to, to, to elapse, you know, so however many seconds that takes. And then, and then you know, to get through 18 quintillion, we, you, you're not going to get through that. You're not going to, no one is going to hear all of those rhythms, unfortunately, not in one lifetime. And we're just talking about pure rhythm, on and off, note or rest. We're not talking about melody. So add a melody to those, you know, two different pitches. What about harmony, dynamics, timbre, orchestration? Wow. We're, it's a paradox. You've got infinite choice, or as close to infinite choice as you... If it's not infinite, it might as well be, right? Because already 500,000 years, you know, that's ridiculous. Um, you've got this paradox of seemingly infinite choice contained in this finite period of four bars of music. So these are the kinds of things I do to try and persuade kids who think they know it all. Actually, <laughs> we haven't even started yet, I'm sorry. 
you know, and you see the jaw drop with the big numbers, you know, and you go, wow, okay. So shall we get started? Okay, you're going to practice this week? Good. You know, another one of the things I learned from Gordy about handling the seemingly infinitude of, of what's available in only four bars. Yeah, so just add another four bars of a different rhythm and you've actually like times 18 quintillion by two, I think. Or have you squared it? I can't remember now. I think maybe you've squared it. Yeah. <laughs> so then, you know, it just gets ridiculous at that point, you know. Yeah, no, it's too... Yeah, oh God, let's just stop going down that path. My brain's getting <laughs> yeah, pretty fried. Too. So, so um, yeah. Gordy Knudsen told me an interesting story. Like in Minneapolis, have you ever heard of the drummer Eric Gravatt? No, no, I'm familiar. Is he jazz? Yeah, very much jazz. He's one of the greatest jazz drummers you'll ever hear. So he was famous for being one of the early members of Weather Report when Joe Zarvanel and Wayne Shorter put that together. I don't think he was the first. might have been first or second. Anyway, there's this album of theirs live in Tokyo. And it starts with the drum solo. The first time I heard that, I was like, oh my God, this is really sort of post-Tony Williams, but unique. Incre you've never heard anyone play the drums like this. Like a you know, four-piece bop set you know, early jazz rock stuff and just incredible, right? Wow, you know, Eric Gravatt. And, uh, well, I heard that Eric Gravatt retired from music early on and, and moved somewhere and became a jail warden. Well, it's true, he did become a jail warden because, unfortunately, a very sad story. I think he had two young kids and his wife died when they were very, very young and, like, making money became a bit of a difficult thing. And he, so he moved to Minneapolis and became a jail warden to, to take his kid, you know, to buy them new shoes and stuff, you know. He kept playing. Gordy. So he, Gordy got Eric on some gigs in Minneapolis. And so they spent a lot of time together. So Gordy knows Eric Gravatt, you know, and, and, and they're hanging out. And, and like, uh, there was one, uh, oh, I, I'm probably making up the exact recording, but probably the, the Miles Davis recording that Kenny Clark's playing drums on. Is it Walkin'? One of those, like a 1950s Miles recording, and you know, and the first quintet. Yeah, around that time, like when when Philly Philly Joe was on a lot of those recordings, the prestige things. There's one with Kenny Clark on it. I think it's Walking. So it wasn't all Philly Joe Jones. No, no. There's this one other so one. Cooking, walking, yeah, working, work. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Walking has, of... has. Anyway, does, yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah. matter. But so. Again, I might be making this up, but it's it's equivalent to the actual story, you know. So so Gordy's over hanging out with Eric, and Eric's just listening nonstop to this tape, over and over and over and over again. And Gordy says, "Wow, man, why why are you only listening to this one thing?" And Eric Gravatt says, "Why well, listen till I cop?" <laughs> and and as it turns out, after a while, Eric's singing every part on the recording, every drum beat every baseline he's singing them all he listens to it until he's actually copped it all and it's like that's how you handle it you don't have to it's not about volume of stuff like like you hear sort of old timers my age and, and older like sort of say oh kids these days with all the internet and youtube and itunes they've got <laughs> access to all the songs and they just don't know how to appreciate anything <laughs> is that you impersonating yourself yeah in 20 <laughs> years time yeah oh dear. yeah but you know <laughs> you know and and but the kids they don't have any more time they don't have any more time in their day than they did right might be yeah, maybe maybe they're listening to more stuff and it's, you know... It's a, a wider... Yeah, span. there's nothing wrong with that. 
as long as they're listening, right? Really, it's. I, I mean, I sort of prefer to go down the Eric Gravatt path and listen till I cop kind of thing. But there's still a lot more I can cop on the records that I've even that I've listened to a hell of a lot of. I can I can still cop a lot more from that, and that's why I think you can come back to recordings years later and just go, "Wow, there's a whole new thing opening up here." Yeah, that's what we were talking about just before. Right. Yeah, with yeah, this, true. Uh, yeah, Kenny Garrett, yeah. Kenny Kirkland, <laughs> yeah. and Jeff Watts, and yeah. oh, I've listened to that basically since it's come out, <laughs> and yeah. I can still go back and just yeah. be completely just. Exp- explosion just total explosion yeah that's a phenomenal recording that one wow yeah so you know like i think does that answer your question about like like you know having all of this stuff to check out it's like yeah yeah you know like well one way yeah i think i think the broad scope of listening to a lot of stuff isn't bad as long as you're actually trying to absorb some of it, you know, um, I wouldn't want to be one of those old guys who's complaining about, oh, they're listening to all this stuff, and they know we used to we used to have the record on the turntable, and you know, we'd listen to it until uh, <laughs> until we wore the groove out, you know, young whippersnapper. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that's, that, you do that voice very too well. Uh, it's very well practiced, uh, Mister Lake. Uh, Yes. Anyway, no, but... uh, So, well, I I guess the next logical question would be, how do you listen deeper? So, is transcribing transcribing a doorway? Because I've done a little bit of transcribing back in the day. And it was was always amazing to me how much I got out of that. Because I'd listen to certain things and there were sort of two things that happened. One, I would be amazed at how complex it was. And then other times it would be like, how simple it was i'd be like it's it's just it's just three notes but i can't hear what what is actually happening because there's so much more happening than this and i know you've done a lot of transcribing in your time yeah yeah so is that the answer to Uh, how do you listen deeper well it depends on what you mean by transcribing doesn't it like uh, it can come in different forms like um uh I, I there are a couple there's like the, almost the reverse transcription experience that I had at one point where Re- reverse transcription well, I'm not, I mean I'm just That's making that up right now That's an interesting term <laughs> Well no the, the, what happened that that okay on that occasion was like uh, Cameron Undy the bass player played me a recording he said check this out like, okay and I'm like wow cool two pianos That's pretty wild stuff He says no man that's one piano <laughs> really yeah and uh it was um uh study number one called disorder by george ligetti have you heard that stuff his no, piano pieces familiar his piano piano etudes oh my god you're gonna have your mind blown when you check this stuff out seriously <laughs> that that was a being introduced to ligetti's uh, piano etudes was a life-changing experience for me and and i know it's going to change your life i i'm like oh my god i've never heard anything like this that's not possibly one so i i had to i need to know because it's a composition i need to know what that music looks like so i went straight to the music store and i ordered the scores and then the, the whole series of etudes just turns out to be unbelievable you know and 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 finally the scores arrived and it's like oh is that that's what's happening, right? He's got these two hands actually overlaid and, and they're, you know, you could see it sort of, in a way, it looked a lot simpler on paper, but it's actually, it's also very, very difficult. It's not something you're going to sight read. Although my, my sister-in-law is a great sight reader. She she did a pretty good job 
for a few bars there, but the meter changes very quickly. There's no bar lines. It's all anyway. So this is great. You put me onto Conlon Nancaro last time. Yeah, yeah. Now you're putting me onto this. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's I'm calling it, that reverse transcription. Like, yeah, like uh, I'm not going to go and transcribe Ligeti, but if I just could order the scores, I can kind of see. I need it. I needed to see what that. What does that notation look like? For, for one piano, you know, and I thought it was two. So, um, so that's one sense of it. And, and you know, like with transcription, I remember my early days of transcribing. I was at the Con Library, and I and I heard this Cannonball Adderley live album, um, and I, I think it was, um, gosh, I, I can't remember exactly the full rhythm section now, but I know it was Lewis Hayes on the drums. Why can't I remember? Whoever was in that band before um, Joe Zawinul was, I just can't think right now. Anyway, do you, do you know what? I, I, it's maybe Sam Jones on bass. and oh. Your jazz history is much sharper than mine, oh, okay. man. Well, it's not really sharp right now. Anyway, I, I they played a really up-tempo piece, you know, and, and, yeah. and I'm like, wow, Lewis Hayes sounds incredible. You know, wow, I have to write down what that is. I got some manuscript and pencil out and I put the headphones on. This was before you had any sort of looping technology available. I just had to keep rewinding the CD. <laughs> trying to get I'll just get that so next note. oh my goodness but that's what we had you know and um well i got maybe four or eight bars of his comping down and then i then i look at it and go is that right and i'm listening to it and corroborating that with the sound of the recording and i looked at it and I go yeah those notes are right but i again like with the recordings i haven't captured the essence of the the propulsion of his time feel in in what I've written here, I could I could say use some Italian term, you know, con rigor. I don't even know what those things mean. You know, well, I'm not a classical player, but like he could use you know some really elaborate Italian terminology to sort of in, in, incite some percussionists to maybe play like that. But they're not even going to do it, you know. Um, so I, I sort of I I I I. I came into two minds about transcribing at that point. I thought, well, okay, yeah, I can't capture the essence of it, but I can capture the mechanics of it. So it's good, good comping rhythmic ideas, but you've got to understand you're not capturing the essence. And but more recently though, for transcribing, I haven't been writing anything down. I've actually been doing what I call land uh, live transcribing, live transcription, where um, there might be some figure that I really want to learn or groove or whatever. I put it into my looping software, and I chop it up into small loops. And I'm at my drums with my headphones on, and I I learn it through playing it and listening, playing along with it, right? Because I, I when I did my thesis, you know, like it didn't matter that I could play the stuff or not. It just was about the notes on, like the black and white ink on. For the know. purposes of submitting your thesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It did not matter at all whether I was a drum. Well, it did. I mean, for me, it mattered that I had a drummer's insight into listening to the drums but yeah there was no performance aspect to it so i i dabbled with a few of tony williams figures that i transcribed for the thesis at the time but i didn't really learn them you know it was just like such hard work just just writing all of that stuff down i just didn't have time you know um and but yeah coming out of that i realized you know with these things that i really want to learn you got to remember with music that the notation came after the fact. The sound was always there first, you know. And when when um, when you watch kids learn how to speak, 
you're not in you're in kindergarten before you learn to read and write yet you can already speak in full sentences and understand grammar and everything like that so you got to steep yourself in the sound just like when you're listening to mum and dad learning to speak when you're, when you're a baby you know then the notation comes later so i sort of model my my learning like that like a, a, i can play the whole thing and if i want to write it out i'll write it out by by memory i'm not going to write it out and then learn what i wrote that's putting the cart before the horse as far as i'm concerned these days so do you learn small figures or entire songs more more generally I learn the things that I like the sound of. So there'd be a particular part or a lick. Yeah. Or well, a like, feel? Yeah, feel. Like um, I, I always love this groove that Andrew Gander plays across a whole bunch of recordings. I've joked with him about it, calling it that Sydney beat. <laughs> There's a reason for that, which I won't go into. But, but um, yeah, he's got this lovely sort of, it's like an up-tempo jazz feel. It's almost got a backbeat, like it's a half-time 16th note kind of feeling, you know. It's just this broken semi-quaver feeling, right? And and he's got this wonderful way of just keeping it, keeping it bubbling along, you know, that's unique to him. There's a the slightest swing to it. It's beautiful. And um, yeah, that Sydney beat. And so there's a Barney McCall album called Exit, and there's one track on there can't remember what it might even be the title track and that feel is on there I'm like oh Andy sounds so good on this that feel is incredible what's he because when I was playing the cymbal at the time I was sort of restricted to and all my 16th notes would come on the snare and the bass drum but I couldn't I couldn't coordinate my right hand to play anything other than quavers or eighth notes I wanted to break it up and syncopate it at like 16th you know so I'm listening to Gander and I realized oh he's actually kind of deferring to a, like a like some kind of um, Mozambique or Cascara or some kind of Huawanko pattern you know like that's it seems this it's more regular than I thought it was but but it seemed to have its essence in some kind of Latin music and I realized oh that of course it does like it's he's not just making it up it's, it sounds so good because it's coming from this heritage this, this language that has already existed for a long time and is recognized as sounding cool so you know he's not just doing it with numbers and stuff um, so yeah, there was like I, I transcribed maybe I don't know eight or sixteen bars before I started to recognize the pattern. He, he you know strays from it occasionally, but this is pretty much intact. So I realized, okay, if I make that my staple, and I stray from it sometimes too, then that's my version of that. That Sydney beat. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a little thing. If I like the sound of it, I'll, I'll try and nut it out. But then sometimes I feel like it might ruin that aspects of it. So there's, some, there's a Radiohead song, actually, that was on, I don't know, it was a hit about 2000, 2001, that's got all this changing meter. It's regular in some way, and it was a big hit. Um, and I've, I've forbidden myself to work out what that is. And my, my flatmate at the time worked it to out. To keep the magic? Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to know what it is, because it sounds new. To, I, I, I hear it. I bought that album. I'm like, yeah, I want to hear this. And... uh yeah, I love the this limping kind of, you know, falling over itself kind of feeling. It just keeps, the beat just goes and you're like, wow, I'm surprised again. But if I knew what it was, the surprise element would be gone. So there's times when you want to work it out and there are other times when you just, you want to just leave it and just enjoy the beauty of what it is, you know. So yeah, transcribing can help like the learning process for sure. I think, you know, and I I, I try to, I try to expose my students to what sounds good 
I keep all these playlists on my YouTube channel. Like if I hear some great drumming, I'll um, if I if I don't have the drummer, like I I list them in like according to the name of the drummer who's on that. So it's sort of easy to navigate for drummers, you know. But I'll, I'll sometimes have like a playlist of time feels. Like there's a three four jazz waltz folder. It's got Elvin Jones and a few other things that I I think sound good as a waltz. Just as a reference, I'll say to my students, check this playlist out, you know, or check out this drummer, you know. Or this is what Latin drumming sounds like, you know. You got to hear it. If you're not hearing it, that's not music. I'm sorry. It's sort of like asking you, you, someone coming for lessons in painting, and they say, "Oh, yes, I'd like to learn to paint, but please don't ask me to handle a paintbrush." What are you doing? You got to be kidding me. But people do it in music. It's incredible. <laughs> Actually, there was something else I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Who is Max Alduca? This is the million-dollar question we're all asking. Who is Max Alduca? He's inter- a bass player, right? The international man of mystery. <laughs> is he? <laughs> no. He's a bass player. And, is he a young gun or is he your generation? No, he's a young gun and a wonderful, wonderful bass player and a wonderful human being. Yeah. Because I know you recorded with him and Nick Southcott. Yeah. And I, the name sort of rung a bell, but I wasn't like, what? Mm. what, what like, where have I heard that name before? Yeah. So he's on the scene. He sure is. Yeah. Yeah. Have you got any copies of that CD? Is that on CD that Nick yeah, South yeah, I'll got? give you one. I've got one out there. Oh, yeah. can I buy one? You've no, got you one. You can have it. I'll give it to you. Oh. Um, yes. Speaking well, about teachers, yeah, yeah. Nick Southcott yeah. was my piano teacher yeah. back in the day. And he was just one of, the, uh, one of those musicians on the scene like you, mm. which somehow always knew the answer to the question. <laughs> and it really, like I remember this one lesson with Nick Southcott where I'd been learning jazz from him for yeah. a couple of months and it was all it was all jazz. It's ABC jazz. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I want to learn about Latin. <laughs> and he just, he just knew it. He just pulled yeah. out this, you know, Ruben Gonzalez yeah. lick and he just knew it. Mm. And he's also into classical and... It just was always this thing of how, wow, how can someone know that much? Well, you, I mean, you're, you're talking about a particularly uh, gifted individual there. Yeah. I mean, he is an exceptionally brilliant musician. And when I say that, I mean he perceives music directly with no interference. He hears rich chords. I don't think he has perfect pitch, but that doesn't matter. It's He can hear harmony with exactitude. Subtle nuances. I've heard him describe things like, oh my goodness, oh, what ears this guy's got. You know, he's, his ears are the kind of ears I want to have when I grow up one day. <laughs> I don't think it'll ever happen because, I mean, he, he, he had this, he's got these incredibly musical parents and uh, funnily enough he went to the con high school as well as a flautist i believe you know so he plays did you know that he He plays plays flute as well yeah Yeah, i did know that um so he's got a wonderful classical background so he can play the hell out of the piano as a pianist his pianism is exceptional and the richness of tone and the awareness of the qualities of richness of tone he's very very sensitive to these things and the actual music and, you know, the intonation of the bass and the choice of bass notes and the locking in with the drummer and all this stuff. And, yeah, he's got extensive history in Latin bands. 
he's one of the well-known cats so yeah. no surprise that he he showed you a few things there and um we've been friends for a long time I, I met him about six months before i moved to sydney and then i moved to sydney and i said hey man he says who are you <laughs> <laughs> i remembered him he didn't remember me that's all right but we became pretty good friends really quickly and we're still very good friends and and we we played a lot in my early days in sydney a lot like just about everything we did like that we initiated we had each other on our projects you know and then you know life happens when you you he moved to canberra and wollongong and dip. so there were times when we weren't um close like just you know approximately but um but but we never lost contact and then i don't know sometime maybe about eight years ago he came over we just sort of decided hey let's get together so we're living in west right he came over to the house and and we just talked like we got to play yeah we got to play <laughs> Uh, but we couldn't find a bass player that we i mean there's some wonderful bass players no no nothing disparaging about any bass players around but we just we we needed to find a particular kind of bass player you know it's a very big conundrum when you have a when you want a trio yeah. and two have a very deep connection yeah there's a very narrow <laughs> i know list of qualities that that yeah. person can fill the third spot yeah. for i know what you mean and i've been that third person on many occasions in other situations and, it's not it's not the quality mm. it's something else yeah which yeah. is hard to yeah something yeah. that's difficult to put into words but you yeah. know it when it's there and well anyway i was doing a gig i think i was subbing for andrew dickerson on a on a jam session that he used to run and um nick either came and sat in that night or he was in the house band too i can't remember but anyway I think he and Max knew each other and I hadn't met Max before, but uh, Max was there and he got up and played. We played as a trio and Nick and I are like, <gasps> that's it. That's it. That's yes. it. We found our guy. <laughs> so we got together really quickly after that and started, Nick, Nick got inspired to write a whole bunch of music. He's a brilliant composer, man. Uh, I mean, you'll hear it on this, on the CD. Like, Is there, are there swing beats on it? Mm. Or is it more modern? fusion uh, no it's more textural like it's it's no there's a quasi up-tempo swing sort of in a post ornette kind of lonely woman kind of vibe that's as close as we get i think to any kind of swing feel no it's more dare i say ecm you know yeah uh, I, I, know, open, I know the open, style yeah yeah, yeah, like yeah aaron parks yeah i don't, I don't even know like his a, music terribly much but just yeah. etheric open yeah you know explorative uh, and we we were very lucky. Nick put in a, 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 an application for a competition at the Cranbrook School, and they've got incredible. They've got this incredible budget. They've got like I don't know, fifteen thousand dollar microphones and stuff in their music <laughs> department, you know. So they put on a competition to to attract people to their studio. It was a friend of ours um, who happened to be working there as well, who who let us know about the competition, and um, and. Um, so Nick found out about it and put in an application. They had a panel judging. We had done maybe a couple of gigs at that point, so we had some pretty rough recordings that we submitted. And um, we, we ended up winning that competition. And so we got like 12 days of recording time in their, in their studio with their incredible setup and their, and their nine-foot Steinway. Um, and it so was, this is the album? Yeah, this turned into... This is what turned and, out. And they released the album for us. Wow. Um, so we were very, very lucky to have um, Roger, the engineer, or his, he's engineered with his students. It was like an experience for the Cranbrook students as well to sort of take part in this project, um, to learn about engineering and, and how things take place in a recording studio. And um, 
but you can't deny Roger's influence on the mic setup and the choice of everything and the way the whole thing ran. You know, he was he's not there anymore, but um, very very influential cat. Uh, and uh, yeah, we were very very proud of. That. We experimented actually. I, I was experimenting with the actual the setup because we only had one room to record in, so we had to you know it had to be done very very particularly and mixed in a very particular way to get. Because it could be disastrous if it's done wrong. Well, the experiment worked. <laughs> well, I'm really proud of that album, um, which is a rarity. You know, like I- I'll give that to anybody in the world and say, "You've this, done so many albums this by is now." Me. Oh, it's close to forty, which by some standards is nothing, but for me, it's a lot. And and um, this is one that would definitely be in my top one, two, three, four, five. I don't know. You know, like I can't wait to hear it, man. Oh, man, I'll, I'll give you a copy. Um, and um, yeah, and Nick really shines on it as a pianist, as a composer, as an improviser, as an artist, as a you know just a human being. And, and Max too, I think there's a real chemistry in that trio. We, we became very tight, and we haven't played. It's hard to organise gigs. Nick and I both have families now, and you know it's it's um, we'll we'll keep going. Um, yeah. Can you also do an album of standards, please? <laughs> Just like the well, old classics, yeah, do well, some standards. I guess we could if we can sort of arrange or even to just, get in the studio again. Just play them and I'll come and listen. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's an interesting thing. I mean, there's a time and a place when playing standards is just the perfect thing to do. Yeah. You know, and, and I can have a lot of fun on some wedding gig just playing standards, you know, or on a Sunday. I just I'm a I, sucker for standards, man. Yeah, me too. I, 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 I think you're a man after my own heart in that sense. <laughs> I, I did a Sunday afternoon gig in a pub blues point hotel with joe fabro last weekend and i was just getting my drums out of the car i thought yeah i've got a real soft spot for these sydney pub sunday afternoon jazz gigs with a great singer like joe and and um and you can play standards on those gigs and just have a blast you know that's uh, probably if i have a specialty that's one of my specialties is that i know a lot of tunes i mean i'm a drummer i mean i know the form and you know, a melody of a lot of tunes that I can kind of play. Yeah, you really know not them. Just, not just playing the time. Well, I hope, hopefully, yeah, as as well as I can on the, on the drums. I can't yeah. play them on the piano, but I'm not a pianist. So, but like, yeah, I really love that stuff. Um, yeah, it, it, outside of those contexts, it has to be a very special reason to call standards. And sometimes it's an epic failure. I feel the weight of the world on my shoulders when when I'm in a like a performance, like a proper concert venue type situation where where it's standards. I feel the weight of the world on my shoulders because like I'm not I'm not an American and I'm not. It's such a big history. Yeah, and look, I'm just a dabbler really. Uh, as much as I love it, uh, I'd much rather play original music. I really would. Um, not a, not as a way out of playing standards, but I, I think, yeah. I don't know. It's good. like for years there, people would say, "Oh, are you doing covers gigs?" And I say, "No, no, no, I don't do covers gigs. I've done a handful of them since I've been in Sydney, but it's not something I tend to do. I did a lot more covers gigs when I was in Tamworth. You know, well, I, I guess a covers gig is defined by they used to call it top forty music. You know, just all the pop hits that are happening and that people recognise. That's a covers band. But I realise playing in bands that play jazz standards i've done a hell of a lot of covers gigs because <laughs> yeah. playing all the standards it's all covers you know but it's the jazz equivalent so yeah i've done a ton of covers gigs but in the, in the jazz context you know i guess 
I guess I don't rock as hard as, as people wish drums could rock. I, I think I rock. When I get a chance to rock, I really, like, I, I love it. And I take pride in, in rocking. But I don't know. I don't have a, a great deal of experience in it. So maybe I don't rock as hard as I like to think I do. But, but yeah, it's all, it's all music to me. I guess there's a context, like context matters. If you're going to play standards at the pub yeah. as a performance, that's very different to saying, okay, now we're going to record something, yeah. release it on a label, tour it and promote it. Yeah, You wouldn't really want to do that with standards unless no. really, you know, if you're Keith Jarrett and you're a jazz icon and mm -hmm. you really are that yeah. thing, then that's a different story. Yeah. yeah. I mean, those guys grew up, grew up playing standards. I mean, it's funny, like I mentioned Joe Fabro before, like we, we, we've done, I've done that gig and a whole bunch of other sort of pub gigs with her as well. And she's just fantastic to work for. I love her so much. She's really, really cool. Great singer and just a cool person. And, um, and she, she gets it. She knows how it works, you know. But she did get a gig at Foundry 616 late last year and she used the band that did the Sunday afternoon gig and and like this is a like a performance venue you know dedicated and all of a sudden there's all these charts of the same tunes that we've been playing and i'll be playing without charts you know in the pub carefree and and now there's these charts up on the stand i'm nervous I'm like oh god i want to get this right and you know and like, so the arrangements were more well, they were the same specific. essentially but it was like let's 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 actually do the arrangement like where the drummer's just not flying blind and just sort of catching stuff as it goes by you know what yeah. i mean like so it was like a bit of turned into a reading job at that time. And it was, I'm not like, it was just a different experience. You know, it's like, it's what you're saying, like take it out of the context, put it in another context. It's different. So yeah, in the recording studio, it'll be different again. And I'll be freaking out even more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how do you become pitch perfect? Like Nick Southcott or deep ears like Nick Southcott? I guess we've already really covered that talking about transcribing. Yeah. It's exposure, man. Like, is it only a matter of, dedication to doing the practice you have to want to in the first place like like i, I heard a great uh expression a while back um which was interesting i said this to mike rivet once and he, he really got knocked out by it I, I, he got more out of it than i got out of it but it still has legs it's like what we pay attention to we become aware of right and you have to always question what is it that's just outside of my attention and can I expand the quality and quantity of my attention to, to let that in, you know? And, 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 and so, you know, like it's weird. Cause like, you know, that there's something there that you don't know, but you recognize that you don't know it. So you, you try to get the tools together to let it in so that you at some point know it. And this is the thing that Ernest Holmes said, and I mentioned him before. He said, we only know as much as we can prove by actual demonstration without demonstrating the truth of something you don't know anything words are nothing talk about it as much as you want if you can't do it that's it so nick he is it he doesn't even know it he is he's it. the real deal he's the real deal and you know like he's not as well known as i think someone with his immense immense musicality could possibly be and i i kind of regret that that's the case i mean he, he's working he don't get me wrong like he I, he seems to be happy this is this is my own assessment of the situation i i think that he should be a well-known australian jazz pianist yeah. and you know in my world he is and highly regarded as such um 
Yeah, uh, look, and I, I lived with his parents, actually, when I came back from New York that first time. I didn't have anywhere to live and I didn't have any money and they let me stay in the house for minimal rent. And um, they've got a gorgeous Yamaha C7. Well, at that time they had it in this house. And, um, you know, they were at work during the day and I was just hanging out in the house with nothing to do. So I just sat at the piano. They always kept it tuned. Like they even talked about like not only getting it tuned, but getting it voiced you know, which is a whole other level of sound, you know, which I don't really understand. How far it's tempered sort of thing. Yeah, this I've listened to people tune pianos before mm. and I can hear how, because of the way the harmonies work, it's sort of an endless pit of where you put yeah. each note. There's, <laughs> yeah. a, there's an infinity there. Yeah, I think like so. Like we're talking yeah. about rhythms, the tuning is also... Yeah, a, so you tip the rhythm... No, stand the rhythm up on its end and you've got harmony, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, so they were very sensitive to that. I mean, that, that's the kind of house he grew up in, you know. So, so so you spent some time playing this Yamaha. I just sat there trying not to ruin the voicing <laughs> of the thing with my hacked touch. But I wasn't even going. I was, I was doing my Schoenberg exercises using their piano, just seeing how they sounded, my, trying to get my voicings right. And, and, um, and yeah, just even just even just like closing my eyes and just letting my hands make random shapes, just moving chords around, you know, like I tried to do a bit of voice leading if I could, but I don't really know what I'm doing. So um, and I don't have the chops to play melodies. I mean, I can I could learn something very slowly, but I, but I would just sit there and I would really enjoy the dissonance of this chord. And I would try and find the voice in there and go, OK, where can I resolve that? What's the semitone that I can resolve that inner voice to, you know? and take my chances and, and screw it up. Or, you know, I found after about two weeks of doing that, my ears really pricked up, you know, like my, my awareness of, of intervals really, really like became instant, you know, and accurate, you know? So I've got a little app on my phone that I, I've got this new rule now, rather than check my Facebook or any of that nonsense, I'll open my, my relative pitch app and do, do an ear training test. So there's an app. Yeah, well, yeah it's can, a very good app. You and can use for relative pitch training. Absolutely. Wow. What's it called? It's, it's called Relative Pitch. <laughs> relative Pitch. And um, they've got a suite of apps, actually. I'm not, um, I don't know who, who the manufacturer is, but it wouldn't be hard to find it. I can send you a link to it anyway. Yeah, I'd love to know about um, that. There's one that also does triad training, which is really good, like inversions as well of major, minor, augmented and diminished and i guess and with the augmented the, there's no such thing as inversions yeah but because it's all major thirds but but yeah i've been because i i recognize yeah, i can hear the tonality major minor augmented and diminished and also dom they don't have a dominant there's another app that handles the seventh um so there's these three apps i've got on my phone now and i'm just doing a lot of ear training these days and it's great because like i'm always getting 20 out of 20 out of my um, interval tests wow you know and um uh but my, my triad voicings weren't like the inversions. I can recognize a major chord, major triad for sure, but I wasn't really able to tell if it was in first inversion or second inversion. So I had to realize, okay, you know, all right, well, in first inversion, then I'm actually hearing like a minor sixth from the bottom note to the top note. You know, I can hear the major quality of the chord, but, you know, between the E and the C, it's a, it's a minor six. I've got, if I hear the major tonality with the minor six interval in it, then that's first inversion, you know. And then in second inversion, where you've got the major sixth as well as the major quality. So that's when I know it's in second inversion, you know. And I started to work out, okay, so the same for the minor triads and all this stuff too. So I tried to, the better my ears got at hearing the intervals, 
I could start to hear the inversions of the tri- of the triads, you know, and I'm like, ah, oh, cool. So, you know, when my ears are attuned like that and I'm playing, I can kind of, I don't hear everything that goes by, of course, so I wouldn't ever profess to, but but I can hear enough that I can hear the resolutions and the dissonances and the harmony, just the way the pianist is handling the movements and at least, you know, in a very limited capacity, but, but better than it would be if I wasn't doing that training. Yeah. Um, it helps me set it up right on the drums or at least to the best of my ability, you know, which is really my job. <laughs> if I'm not doing that, I'm not doing anything. So Kenny Kirkland is going at a million miles an hour and he's doing extensions. Oh, he's no, doing that. triple I mean, upper yeah. structure and it's three in the uh, space of two beats. And yeah. No, I'm talking about yeah. triads <laughs> in inversions, man. Yeah. But you hear, you hear yeah. the overall flow of where someone's going. Yeah, you, you can, can you hear... Can, you yeah. can, if you if you do your triads practice when you're listening, or this is what I find yeah, yeah. when listening to those million mile an hour hot cats, mm-hmm. you can hear more mm. because you can hear the different resolutions. Yeah, I guess you hear not exactly, but there's there's more of a detail. It's, it's sort of like a never ending learning mm. how deep you can go. Yeah. And look, you know, with cats like Kenny Kirkland, I mean, he's such a such a complete player. Uh, He's probably not even a hundred. It's it's more intuitive what's coming out for him anyway. He's not planning every or I'll play a second inversion major triad. He's not thinking that at all. He's he's so good. Uh, and uh, <laughs> that that he's it's in, it's intuitive. He's not even thinking about that. You know, I had a two and a half hour Skype session with Hal Galper a couple of weeks ago. And he was talking about intuition. He's writing a book about it on proofreading at the moment. And um, yeah, it's like he's 80 now. And one of the one of the true greats, one of the last ones remaining. And, and he's just like all intuition. And he intuited this early on. But now he's backing it up with all sorts of evidence. And, and um, So what is intuition, according to him or as you understand it? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, you know, I didn't even know. Like, I I think it's tied in with what people refer to as the zone and transcending and, and all of that where where you can kind of almost have an out-of-body experience. Like, it's like you you are played by the music. You don't play it. It plays you. And you, you're actually sort of standing back and just watching your hands get around the drums or on the piano keyboard like you know and it's just it's just happening like you're so attuned mentally and psychically and physically and emotionally that you everything's in place and you you're, you're relaxed as well and you're not you, again you don't have that ambition to sound good you just uh You've done the practice. You cannot get intuitive unless you've done a hell of a lot of work on very, very, very important fundamental things. It will not happen. I can guarantee that. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think I've played entirely intuitively, maybe not even a handful of times my whole life. I think that Bob Berg experience was one for sure, just because it was just such a great... You had to. You had to. And I think someone as great as that brings that out of other people. That's what that's what's so great about them, and that's why you want to be around them because they just inspire you, you know. And if you've done the work, you you have access to those portals. Yeah, and I think that's I don't really know other than that. I don't. 
it's certainly not a tuitive approach, you know, like the practice and the process of getting it together is very tuitive, you know, tuition, you know, like. So that's the etymology, is it? I believe of so. Intuition. Yeah, it's like. And it's, tuition. It's not. Tuition. You know, I don't even know what tuition is really, like to tuit. What is that? I don't even know the proper definition of that, but like tutor, tuition, intuition. They're, they're related, I'm sure. A tutor, you know, like tutors you mm-hmm. takes you through the process of learning the the information that's been presented so intuition is like there's there's no one guiding your hand not you're not even guiding your own hand your hand is just free to be what it is and that robert fripp essay comes back into it again like with the use of the hands like you love it and i don't know do you know do you know what it, like if you if you read about like what people say intuition is not much mm. no one word that comes to mind is epiphenomenon or like wow. a like a emergent property right so you need to have these certain yeah. things these built sort of like building blocks in place conditions yeah so if you're building a house it's made of bricks yeah and so the each brick would be something that you've learned mm. and you need to have that many in order to have a house maybe that's an analogy that can help convey that Oh, you know what you would just made me think of just then? I was wondering about those bricks and I thought, if you switch two of those bricks around, is it still the same house? <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, but that, that I realized... That's a, very, that's a very zen question. Yeah, but that that's not an original idea though. I've just realized where that comes from. There's a Stockhausen book where he talks... He was a zen guy, I think. And, and there was one thing that he wrote about was like the way... Yeah, what was he talking about? Something about his composition. Like, oh, no, he was talking about aleatoric music aleatoric music yeah. i've never heard that term so that's before. that's music where there's a piece on the trio flight album that's aleatoric the second piece it's, it says that i composed it um but i composed the form of it and the rest of it took care of itself the nick southcott max alduca yeah, trio yeah the piece okay. is called um three fall and that's an aleatoric piece now alia aleatory is you know, i'm not sure if Sch- um stockhausen coined the phrase or if he was sort of tapping into something that was already in existence but you have a certain set of directions for the performer or performers but they have a degree of choice with how they're gonna interpret that set of directions like they have to be literal about it, but like there might be a different order in which they go I, you know like it's really up for grabs the way the aleatory is interpreted but this is what this is what the bricks in the house this is um stockhausen's best way of uh characterizing it was to say okay imagine a tree right a big bushy tree with lots of green leaves right can you picture it yeah take every single leaf on that tree and replace it in a different place now you have the same yet different tree or a different yet the same tree. <laughs> That's aleatory, you know, and, and or aleatory, however you pronounce it. And um, so musically, yeah. So for this piece on this album, like there's a set of characteristics, but the guys make choices, and it's 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 wildly different every time. The one we captured on the album is my favorite of i've done it with lots of different bands and um that's by far the best one i've ever played just just because of the way the guys the choices they made were just really synergistic and you know it was wonderful yeah 
Sounds like a pretty fresh way to compose. Yeah, well, there's not much to it compositionally. I mean, at least in the way that I did it. You could you could be a lot more involved than, than the way I was um, with that piece. But yeah, it's, uh, it's cool. I like it when it's like that, you know, like no one knows what anyone else is doing. That's the that's the key element of what I wanted to get happening on that piece. And and they're not really allowed to react in a way that they would if they knew what the other player was doing. They just have to kind of keep going. Um and let. And I think I think a big part of intuition is letting. Cameron Undy always says he's he threatens to write a self help book called Let Go and Win. <laughs> That sounds great, I man. hope he does it. I would like that book. But, I would probably read that sort of book. Yeah, me too. He's a master of intuition, I think, and he really knows how to let go. Um, so I, I, you know, I take my cues from someone like that. Sometimes, you know, I just see him nailing it, and yeah, but yeah, letting go, intuition, and aleatory, aleatory. I don't know what aleatory, aleatorianismation. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I got another mm. dumb person's question for you. Is 10-part invention 10 musicians? Correct. Yeah. And you play with them yeah. on the regular. Yeah. Do you do you have an album where you've recorded with them? No, but we're working on it. It's a very difficult thing to manage at the moment for a variety of reasons. Um, but everybody is still into it. The, the, the founder and president of the um, incorporated trust that it is um, John Poche is still alive and and still inspiring all of us, but he retired from drumming hmm, coming on eight years ago now, and that's why I have been the mainstay since then. I've been filling in for him for oh uh, over twenty years now, and um, you got to record with that band, man. We're working on it because you got to get something together. More than half of the band is new new players yeah. since since I joined it and and it's really fresh and Paul Cutlin and Sandy Evans and Paul McNamara have each written and Andrew Robson have each written new compositions for it I'm working on one um which sound great the band it takes a whole new direction and it's just a lot to coordinate it's very expensive to run and everybody's so busy with their freelance and lecturing lives that uh it's very difficult. Whenever we get a gig under the belt, my God, it's, it's such epic. a celebration. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, every time I do it, I'm just like, wow, what a, this, am I? I'm still dreaming. Surely this is <laughs> not happening. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, ten. It's a. I guess it's a play on the um, Bach invention, six part invention, and all that kind of counterpoint stuff. Uh, ten part invention. You got ten, ten possible lines there. Uh, and they based it on Thelonious Monk's Live at Town Hall instrumentation, um, which I actually, you know what? I sound like an idiot now saying this, but I actually still haven't heard that recording. I know what I'm going to do <laughs> when we finish chatting yeah. today is I'm going to go and... Well, I don't think I know that one either. Yeah, well... But I love Monk. I'll race you to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love Monk too. That straight No Chaser, that album gets me every time. It, that sounds like it could have been recorded today. Yeah. And a handful of other things of his. My favourites... Carnegie Hall with John Coltrane. Oh wow, yeah. God. And there's That's this, a match made in heaven, isn't it? There's this there's this like eight minute piece and right in the middle, Monk hasn't done anything. Mm-hmm. Right in the middle, he just inserts this lick. <laughs> right in the right in the between this 
breath yeah. that you know Coltrane <laughs> takes, and there's nothing else with the whole song. <laughs> it's such a mind oh, mind pop. Wow, I have to check that. I it's been a long time since I've heard that. Uh, yeah, Train and Shadow Mark. Wilson. Yeah, I think. yes. My jazz history is sure. a bit foggy. He sounds great yeah. on that stuff. And what about the stuff with uh, uh, Johnny Griffin? There's something that Johnny Griffin did with Monk too. I love Johnny Griffin. Have you, uh, maybe it's the Jazz Messengers. Live at the five spot? Maybe. That might be uh, I don't Johnny think, Griffin. No, I don't think that's Johnny Griffin. I'm losing my sense of um, personnel now. But but I just the kiss came to mind. There is a Monk thing featuring Johnny Griffin and, and it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Really good, man. Check it out. Uh, There's so much good stuff. <laughs> yeah. What did you talk about? You said it's music and learning and creativity and music um, philosophy of life or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so we've covered covered music, learning, creativity briefly. Yeah. We didn't talk much about creativity as much as we did last time. Yeah. And we could tie it in with philosophy of life, but it, it sounds sort of like you don't separate these things. They're all sort of as one. Hmm. I don't even know, actually. I, like, as I said before, we're talking about taking the garbage out. You know, like there are compartments in your life where things just have to be done. I'm not particularly being creative when I'm taking the garbage out, but well, actually, you know, what's interesting is like the garage that my studio is set up in. Right. Um, when we moved here, the previous owners um, hadn't evidently done any gardening for like at least three years, probably. And the, the place, my wife loves gardening and, and, and I, I, I kind of help out a bit. I'm not really the gardener, but I'll do the lawn and stuff. And um, she takes great care. She loves it, you know. And, and so if this garden looks lovely, which I think it does, that's, that's it looks d- nice, due man. to her yeah. diligence and lo- passion for it, you know. Well, I can't have my studio for the moment, the way the garage is built. Um, um, well, we're going to get it stripped and rebuilt as a soundproof space in the next couple of years but like for the moment it's just a sort of a garage and like behind it you've got these palm trees right and and there's this they've got a stormwater tank and and there's just a little sort of triangle of sort of you know land that you can't really do anything with and sort of you know the stormwater tank drains down the side of the garage and stuff well we didn't even know it but there's this there's this sort of pathway uh, that goes it's like a sunken pathway that goes around the edge of the garage and uh well a couple of months after we moved here and i had my drums set up there i started teaching and and well man there was this massive downpour of rain and and i'm like "Hmm, i hope any i hope no water got in under the door but you know like there's a big awning so but it was a really intense rainstorm so uh i I thought oh should i go and check it now it'll be all right well (laughs) i went out there the next morning to grab my bag to go teaching and it was flooded totally flooded totally flooded. oh no the carpets under the drums were drenched oh carpet fortunately my drums were on the carpet and actually nothing got ruined thank goodness um but i i freaked out oh my god (gasps) <gasps> it's flooded. What are we going to do? And and how did that happen? Because it was a really intense rainstorm. Well, you know, 
well i i didn't go to school that day i called in you know so i can't we've had an emergency at the house like my whole studio is ruined here you know nothing electrical on the floor got fortunately nothing like zapped or anything like that but uh, so i went out the back there with a shovel and i'm like well okay i'm gonna just start digging away man it was like i don't know how how much is that like a more than a foot. That's two feet. Yeah. Maybe more, like three feet, three feet worth of gunk and dirt and crap that are built up from this palm tree that just keeps dropping these balls every, like twice a year and like and 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 just just unkempt garden had built up around the perimeter so that actually the stormwater tank had overflowed and was was like the overflow went into that pile of junk that was around the wall. And it seeped in through the walls. Oh, no. <laughs> it seeped in. I didn't even know that there was, it was so built up when we moved. It was like, God. So I spent the next, like, God, I don't know how many days, two or three days with a shovel clearing that space. I've never worked so hard in my life. So there's one aspect that I've learned from that is that I can't have my creative space without tending to the garden. It's a system that includes the garden. I have to keep that space clear. And if I let it go, it's just going to happen again. And we didn't even know just how much... The, there were trees. We thought there were trees down the side of the garage, but there were just these massive, big, overgrown weeds <laughs> we chopped out and had removed. And uh, yeah, there's this lovely little pathway that goes around that I didn't even know was there. Wow. It was like it's three feet lower than... Than what it appeared to be. It's a lot of build-up. It's a lot of build-up. So it's like you've got to maintain everything. Maintenance is a daily, you know, like you got to clean the dishes. You've got to clean the sink. You've got to clean the floors. You've got to clean your clothes. You've got to dry them. You've got to fold them. You've got to wear them and do the whole thing again. That That is a part of life that everybody has to deal with. Elvin Jones had to clean his undies, you know? Does Cameron Undy have to clean his undies? Oh, well, Sorry, cheap, cheap. Pun I had there. to say it. Yeah. You know, like you know, like we're human beings on this big ball of dirt. You know, shit gets dirty. You got to clean it. If you don't clean it, no one. You know, can you stand to live in your own filth? I can't. So you know, I have to maintain the garden. So the creative thing, maybe it is interwoven in my life, but I just see it. Okay, I've got to keep the garden clean. Stop my studio flooding. That's the utility of it. My wife <laughs> has other reasons for wanting to, you know, she wants it to look nice and it does. Uh, and we, you know, so, um, yeah, there's a certain degree of creativity in that. Like just watching, knowing the season of when things grow, when's a good time to water them, fertilize and all that. I'm learning that as I go. I don't know. She knows that I, I just do what I'm told when it comes to that, you know, but that's, yeah, there's definitely a degree of creativity in, 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 in maintaining a household that's for sure and you've got to stay on top of it you know i think oh, I, I don't i don't have the creative space in my mind like I, I i can't sit down and be free thinking if if i've got like oh god i've got to clean the yeah, the pots and pans cook breakfast dinner or whatever like you know like if they're sitting out there on the bench i'm just like I, i'm thinking about it i know they're there like, oh, i'm gonna clean that and then i'm gonna go and be creative so i get my stuff out of the way you know, it's like sort of... Like an availability. You're making... Yeah. Making yourself available because you don't have other obligations. Yeah, I want to minimize that. So, there's for me, it's a routine. It's almost a ritual. 
Um, I mean, I, I think of it ritualistically just to help it tie into being part of the creativity. It's not separate to it. Living your life is, yeah, enabling the creative act, I guess. Anyway, yeah. So then, what next? What to do? <laughs> this is so much fun talking to you, man. Oh, man, likewise, talking to you is cool. Oh, I love this stuff. I'm going to be listening to so much jazz after this. Yeah, me too, yeah. Monk and you've at, given me some, some things to check out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, the Keith stuff, that's, that's interesting. I don't know, like I, I just, I really feel strongly about that. The striving if you like to get one's stuff as good as it can be to help one person transcend you know like like to transcend their whatever problems they're having you know to forget them just at least for that for again while the music is sounding you know and then i think the memory of having experienced that helps the music to live on you know, and it's the music that's important. Like Frank Zappa said, it's it's not important to be remembered. <laughs> you know, some people pay a lot of money to make sure that they're remembered. Uh, you know, um, and yeah, you know, I, I kind of I sympathise with him there. It's not important to be remembered personally, but it it is important to if you've got any sense of holding on to any kind of torch. You, if you have that torch in your hands, you you are definitely charged with the responsibility of handing it on. You know, maybe maybe even making it a bit brighter while it's in your hands, if you can, or bigger or more useful or something. Maybe it has this extra contraption that helps you make your coffee or something. I don't yeah. know, but like, make it make the torch at least hand it on as a, in as good a condition as it was when it was handed to you, and try to improve it if you can. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good analogy yeah that's because yeah, I, I i just see that like the, the guys that i've learned from they they very very well, as far as i can gather they they, they uh, like when i talk to Gordy, <laughs> i know that he knows how to do what i want to do and he's guiding me along the path of what you have to do <laughs> to be able to do it and sometimes i'm impatient with it and i try to go too fast and it's uneven and it sounds like shit and yeah but he's got this beautiful gentle nurturing way of just making little suggestions in an email like i'll send him a video and he'll say yeah try this he doesn't criticize it he says yeah man you know i, I love that i want to be that kind of teacher one day if i get enough experience with people like gordy um, I would just dearly love to be able to have some other student feel that way about the music and the drums. Not again, not because of me, but because of the the truth and the knowledge that's in the process of getting it together. You know, and 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 learning. You know, um, Rudolf Steiner says, you know, for every step forward you take on the path to higher knowledge, take three steps forward in the perfection of your character. And I feel like I'm sort of learning that at the moment, learning it as a poor, like a bad student, you know, um, like sort of being forced to learn it. Not Gordy's not forcing me to like, I'm having to face the fact 
that I have to improve my character and have patience and fortitude and all these other properties that go into actually what you need to 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 master that thing that you have the rage to master you're much too humble man oh not at all <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, it's um yeah it's like he has this particular way of putting things that i just think is 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 worth every second and every dollar and and every ounce of energy it's not measured in ounces though is it every kilojoule of energy um yeah. invested in it you know and i i just hope that other people can have a similarly rich experience with whatever they're seeking you know to um to learn or to uncover because uh, it's i don't know I, I feel really fortunate to be in a position where i can have that experience as my kind of almost daily thing yeah well Dave, thanks so much for talking with me, man. It's a pleasure to I've had an absolute ball. I loved it. Thanks, man. We'll do it again. Yeah. All right. Over and out. Yeah, cool. Signing off. <laughs>